The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 31. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor, a.k.a. Stan Leroy, a.k.a. Barack O'Comics. In this week's episode, I am joined by special guest host Adam Umack as we interview a gentleman named Thomas Cook. Now, for those of you that don't know who Thomas Cook is, this man has had his hands in animation for a very long time, from working with Hanna-Barbera, Filmation, Disney, uh, you name it. He's probably worked on one of your favorite cartoons in your lifetime, and uh, we uh, have a nice conversation with him. We talk about his love of comics and how that got him, got him into the world of animation, and just, there's a lot of animation history in this episode, and... We get to just talk about all sorts of things, and I think you'll really love this episode, so I hope that you enjoy what Thomas Cook has to offer. So have an open ear and enjoy the episode. And remember, at MyDigitalComics.com, PKD Media still has all their books, their whole digital catalog, available for free to download in a PDF or CBZ format. And you can go to MyDigitalComics.com, download as many books as you want for free until September the 1st. Also, this week's episode is brought to you by the Forum for Geeks podcast of the month. Um, Forum for Geeks, you can find them at Forum, F-O-R-U-M-F-O-R-Geeks.com. And their podcast of the month is ComicTube. And as described here, it says, most comic book podcasts out there are a mixture of comics and the media that comes along with it. What makes ComicTube different than that is that they focus on comic book movies and other geek-related media such as television shows and video games. They do everything from reviews to topical discussions, and best of all, they're all just friends talking about what makes them happy. So feel free to check them out over at www.neverendingchampions.com backslash ComicTube. And now, we're going to start the conversation between uh, Thomas Cook, Adam Umack, and myself. Uh, originally, before we had our conversation with uh, Mr. Cook, uh, Adam and I had a conversation about Super Friends because that's really what started all of this. And uh, you'll get to hear Thomas Cook tell you about his uh, time working on the Super Friends, the Challenge of the Super Friends animated series. But Adam and I had a nice in-depth talk about our love for Super Friends and art. However. Uh, the file was corrupted during editing and it could not be recovered. So I apologize for not being able to have that. But you really enjoy this interview. I hope you dig it and uh, have a listen. So we've got a really awesome treat um, for you guys tonight. Um, we are on the phone, live on the internet right now, with a good friend of ours that we've come to know pretty well over the last couple weeks. He is an uh, animator by trade. He's been involved in the comics and animation industry for what seems to be a lifelong career from what you've told us. And we'd like to welcome Tom Cook. How are you doing, Tom? Yeah, I'm doing great. Excellent. Now, let me give you guys some of uh, Tom's resume here. He has worked on every single show that you have seen when uh, you were waking up on Saturday morning still in your pajamas. He's worked on everything from the Super Friends to the Flintstones to anything Hanna-Barbera put out from He-Man and Masters of the Universe to She-Ra and everything else. And we're really happy to have you along today, man. Great. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Last December or so, I was doing my usual art hunt on comicartfans.com and also on eBay, and 
I just did a search for Legion of Doom, <laughs> and to my surprise, I saw some Alex Toth would look like prelims um, come up on eBay, and it was like a really good deal. Um, you know, and they were facsimiles, they were reproductions and stuff, but I was like, oh, I'm going to buy these. These are great. So they came in the mail and I unpackaged them and stuff. And I just noticed that like the envelope was just really, really stylized and really, it just had great like lettering. And I guess just from reading comics and stuff, I'm just kind of keen to pick up on that, whether it's like from, you know, Richard Starkings or, or whoever is, uh, lettering at the time. And I, I went back and I emailed the eBay seller and I asked, did you happen to work on the show <laughs> by some strange twist I, that just came into my head? And I emailed, uh, and Tom sent me an email back. I mean, and everything after that was just like, I just had all these stories in my head that I, and questions that I wanted to tell him and ask him about, you know, Challenge of the Super Friends and everything else. And Sean, I know you're a big animation fan. I mean, with uh, all the talk we did over Super Show Weekend with uh, Julian and Andrew and stuff, I, I thought this would be kind of like the perfect storm of podcasting. The Legion of Doom's biggest fan, an original animator from the show, and a cartoon aficionado like yourself. So I thought we'd hook it up on here. And I definitely want to talk about, um, about Tom's comic um, recreations uh, website and, um, and the work that he's done to, to do comic recreations and what got him inspired to do that and how he's been able to make an additional career from that. So, uh, Tom, if you don't mind, uh, if you don't mind telling the people, um, what was the inspiration to do uh, comic recreations? Why do you enjoy it so much? Well, um, it happened back around uh, 2000. I was art director at a place called Interactive Imagination, and we were using Photoshop quite a bit, and I was pretty into original artwork, and it had just gotten to the point where Anything that was a halfway decent page was so expensive that I just couldn't afford it anymore. And, um, you know, I had purchased a few pieces over the years from, like, Kurt Swan, and I have a Jack Kirby cover and a few things like that. But um, anything that looked really good, I was, you know, it was costing me five, $6,000. And, you know, being a huge fan of the 60s Marvel, which is what I kind of grew up on, uh, there's no way I'm going to get Amazing Fantasy 15 cover. <laughs> it even exists. So what I decided to do is just make one of my own so I can hang it up in my art room. I've got an art studio at home. And um, so I kind of did one, and it turned out fairly good. And so I kind of scrapped that and did a different one. And this time I came up with a little better way of doing it. And, uh, gosh, it looked really great. And, of course, the difference is there's no yellowing of the pages, there's no paste-ups, it's all, you know, done really nice mm -hmm. with clean artwork, no white-out, and, uh, and then somebody saw it and said, hey, where did you get that? And I said, well, I drew that, and he, and he wanted one, too, so I ended up doing one for him, and then that got me started with uh, putting some of this stuff up on eBay, and, uh, you know, finding out there's a demand for that, because just like me, most people can't afford their, uh, you know, their Grail page. And it's uh, much easier to just have me do it for a couple hundred dollars instead of going out and spending ten grand on something. No, no, that that's completely understandable. I I was amazed by the because um, there were there are samples of uh, some of the recreations uh, that you've done um, on your website, and I was just like, it just kind of like blew me away. Like when I saw like the ama the amazing fantasy cover, or um, there was a um, a classic cat. There's a classic. Um, I guess you would say, is that 
would those be Golden Age Heroes uh, cover um, with uh, Cap and a couple other uh, legendary heroes from back when. And it just it blew me away because I see all these different types of artistic styles coming from one person on the, on these uh, recreations, and that just fascinates me. Um, you know, you have to have like a lot. To me, you have to, a person has to have a lot of artistic versatility to do something like that. So kudos to you. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, the Golden Age one was pretty good. Somebody called me up and said, uh, you know, can I just make him a mock cover? So it's not really a cover, um, and just using his favorite favorite uh, heroes. So he gave me a list of the characters he wanted, and I did some research on them and, you know, saw what they looked like and stuff and kind of put down that, uh, put together that Golden Age Heroes cover and uh, had it make, had it look like an old Golden Age, you know, I made it the same size as a Golden Age cover and gave it the same kind of feel as a Golden Age cover would. And, uh, yeah, he just loved it. And then he, he wanted a Silver Age cover, too, so he gave me a list of uh, Silver Age Heroes that he liked, and I put together a cover for him, too. But, um I didn't scan that one, <laughs> and I'm really sorry I didn't. Because <laughs> I'd love to have that up there on the website too, just to show that you could, you know, custom make your own cover. You know, I could just do it for you. You know, uh, about the time we started talking earlier this year, Tom, it's funny you mentioned Amazing Fantasy 15 because uh, Jack Kirby only recreated that cover once, and it actually went up for auction. The uh, original, of course, being in the Smithsonian. So it was. I, th- I think that this is just kind of uh, one of those meant-to-be moments that we get to talk to you today because uh, of, of, of what you're throwing out there with us. Personally, I really like the cover that you did of the very first issue that Steve Ditko did of The Creeper. And I'm wondering, like, do you have any ones in particular that are really, really memorable to you? Or as far as the commissions that you did, like, do you have, like, a favorite that you've done? I think one of the covers I really, really enjoyed doing was Amazing, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 122, which is the uh, right after the death of Gwen Stacy. It's kind of the death of Green Goblin issue. And I've had this real, I just love the Green Goblin. So number 14 was also a favorite. But the one with Gwen Stacy, I really, um, as a young young kid, I just loved Gwen Stacy. And uh, so when they killed her off, it just kind of killed me. But I thought that it, uh, it was such a nice cover with him holding Gwen and then the Green Goblin up above over that bridge. And that's probably uh, one of my favorite ones I've done. That's a good cover, too, because it's got a lot of motion to it, along with, you know, the banner and stuff that they had, you know, is pretty much the traditional Amazing, Amazing Spider-Man logo um, that, that Marvel put out. Plus, you have, like, there's at least, like, six pumpkin bombs exploding. <laughs> but it's pretty cool because what what you're giving to people is you're giving everything. You're getting the classic heroes and the classic poses. Um, you know, with that cover in particular, you've got the goblin on the glider and probably one of the most iconic moments right up there with like, you know, the death of Supergirl or Elektra and stuff. And you've got his spider sense going on too. So you're really getting like every single facet or component there is to the characters, which I think is uh, uh, no small feat at all. How do you keep your work, I guess, individualized when you're kind of recreating other people's artwork? Well, kind of what I do is um, it's almost like I'm just an inker. You know, I've always had, and in the animation industry, you have to have kind of a, what they call a clean line. So you have to be able to move your hand and keep the line looking really smooth. So it almost looks like you're using a curved ruler, but you're able to do it just by, you know, by eye. 
And I was always kind of blessed with able to really put a nice line quality on all my artwork. So anytime I got a job in the animation industry, uh, they always wanted to kind of put me back into what they call a key assistant um, position. And what a key assistant animator does is they take the kind of rough animation that the animator did and then just kind of pulls everything together so it looks just like the character and so that, you know, the muscles are the same size. Because when an animator is drawing, they just kind of sketch it in blue, in blue pencil. And uh, a lot of times the volume changes on the arms or the legs or even the head sometimes. So I was really good at being able to put this beautiful line on things and kind of draw it back down and make it, you know, just look like the best drawing you could possibly get out of that, that picture. And so that's kind of what I do with the, um, the recreations, is that I'm able to, you know, I know Ditko, you know, he uses brushes a lot, so I try to use my brush. And um, the etching, the etch marks are sometimes pen and ink, sometimes the thicker ones are the brush. And you just get so that, uh, you know, I've just lived these guys, you know, since I was a kid. And you get so that... I mean, you show me an old 40s comic, and I can go, oh, that looks like Kirby, and sure enough, you open it up, and it is. And even though his style's changed over the years, um, you can't disguise the, the power that that guy put into a page. Oh, no, no doubt. <laughs> Not only did he put um, the power of pencil to comic books, he also helped in the animated world as well. It's funny that you mentioned Spider-Man. I was looking over um, your, your history, and you had mentioned that in uh, the 70s, when you had moved to I mean, you had moved to California earlier, but like around in 77, you went to a comic book store in Hollywood called the Cherokee Bookstore, and they had full runs of Marvel Comics, and you were able to, in 1977, and this blows my mind, you were able to buy a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15 for $100 and Spider-Man number one for $75. Now, they weren't in mint condition, but they were like, you know, maybe, oh, very good. Good, very good. So they, they'd been read, mm-hmm. but uh, at that point, it still was like $170 was like, or $175 was like, geez, I don't know if I can spend this. Right. And uh, I just had to do it because I had everything else. So that kind of filled in my Spider-Man collection. And, uh, you know, I had tried a couple times to find a good Spider-Man number one before, and uh, it took me a while before I found a, found a pretty good copy, and then the guy wouldn't sell it to me because I wasn't a regular customer. Oh, and I just said, well, how am I going to become a regular customer if you don't sell something to me? <laughs> so I kind of wrote him off and uh, then just happened to stumble upon this bookstore. And somebody told me there was some comics in there. So I said, I'll go check it out. And it was right on Hollywood Boulevard. So I mean, it was right in the middle of, you know, with the names on the stars on the sidewalk and everything. And uh, I filled in quite a few holes there, but that was the biggest find right there. And they had a Hulk number one, too, but I just couldn't, I couldn't afford it. You know, 175 bucks was too much already. I remember being a kid. I think I was, I think I was around seven or eight years old at, at the time. My mother and father, they used to take me to comic book stores randomly to get me started into comics because they would buy me comic books from the grocery store and from convenience stores as a kid. And I became, you know, massively pulled into Star Wars, everything Star Wars. I had to have it, including the comic books. And one day they take me to a comic book store, and there on the wall was Star Wars number one. That asking price at that time was, was just ridiculous um, in, my, in my parents' eyes. But that's right. all I wanted. 
and I could not convince them to, to get it for me to save my life. They're like, you know, it, no comic book is worth that much. And I tried to plead my case. And even to this day, I, you know, every now and then, like, I'll go out and I kind of wish or try to hope to find, find a copy inexpensively of Star Wars number one. But then I look at my budget. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. I just need to stick with this reprint that I have and just call it a day. love of comic books pulled you into a extension course um, at Cal State Northridge in the making of comic books, and you met an instructor by the name of uh, Don Rico. Now, he was the gentleman that helped you get your start into animation. Is that correct? Yeah. In fact, uh, the only reason I took the class, outside of the fact that it was about comic books, but it was mainly just to meet him because I knew his name from, uh, uh, he drew some of Daredevil, the original Daredevil with the red and blue mask. And I knew that he had done Captain America, and so this was my chance to meet another, you know, Golden Age hero. And uh, so I went into the classroom, uh, and it was going to be a fun class, but he asked us for uh, our por- portfolio, to bring in our portfolio. And my portfolio was chock full of, you know, Doctor Doom and Fantastic Four and that sort of thing. And uh, after class one night, after showing him that portfolio, he kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, I'm working uh, right now as a storyboard artist over at Hanna-Barbera. And he said, we're doing a show um, called Challenge of the Super Friends. Now, there was a Super Friends show before that, mm-hmm. but they were bringing it back. And he said, we have a lot of people that can draw Fred and Barney or Scooby-Doo, but they're not really good at human uh, figures. So, uh, you know, you draw these things really nice, and, and I think I could get you probably in as like an assistant animator or something at Hanna-Barbera. And I was just kind of blown away. It's like I, I knew nothing. I mean, I always had been a big animation fan, but I knew nothing of the process and certainly never thought I'd ever end up as an animator. So I said, well, you know, if, if you think so. And he said, well, there's a class every Thursday night that's free, and if I recommend you, they'll take you into this class you'll learn some of the basics of animation, like in-betweening and how to clean up a drawing and things like that. So I kind of jumped at it, and uh, three weeks later, they hired me as an assistant animator. And I got to tell you, I was just nervous as can be because I really didn't know what I was doing yet. You know, I'd only had three classes. I sort of voiced that to my the director that was uh, hiring me. I said, you know, I kind of really don't know what I'm doing. He said, well, you know, we've seen your work, we've seen your portfolio, we don't have any doubt you're going to be able to make it. So, you know, don't worry about it. So I didn't, and uh, I ended up having to quit my regular job, which is a transit bus driver in Los Angeles, and I made pretty good money doing that. And so it was kind of nervous time to, to jump out and try to do something that I hadn't really done before. But uh, it ended up working out really good for me, and I'm so glad that I did it. As an assistant animator on the show, could you kind of walk us through those opening weeks and those those first times that you actually got to get your hands uh, dirty in the actual show? Like, uh, what did you actually work on for the show? The pre-production or, like, uh, post-production work? No, this was actually, uh, this was the, I was given a scene. It was interesting because Super Friends, even though I was kind of hired to do Super Friends, uh, you kind of had to do whatever came down the pike. Sure. And, uh, and Super Friends wasn't quite ready to hit the drawing boards yet. They were doing storyboards and still doing layouts on it. 
so uh, they gave me an episode of a show that was called the New Fred and Barney Show. It was just basically Fred and, you know, the Flintstones. And uh, the uh, one of the animators, what you did back then is an assistant animator would pick up work from the animator. So he would basically sketch stuff out in that blue pencil, like I told you. And he was kind of responsible for the way the movement was on the uh, in the scene. And then what I would do is I would take his drawings that were all in blue, stick them on my animation desk, put another piece of paper on top of that, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's a light board, so to speak. And so you could see his drawing down below, and then I have to put this really nice line on so that it looks like a really, really nice drawing. And I have to do it for all the main poses. In other words, maybe drawing number one, drawing number five, drawing number ten. And once you get all the poses looking like you want, you take it back to the animator, and he kind of checks it out. Then uh, he says, okay, go ahead, now you do the in-betweens. And what they do is the animator puts a chart down so that if you have drawing number one and drawing number five, the in-betweens, it would depend on the chart where the in-between would go. So sometimes you'd have number three would go right between number one and five. So you'd lay number one down, number five down, and then you literally take and you kind of draw circles to kind of show where his head's moving to, and so you're slowly moving the character across, and then as soon as you do number three, then number two goes between three and one, so you lay those two drawings down and you draw that in between, and when you get done, you end up with a, you know, a full scene that you can flip and see the character moving around, and what, what was kind of a funny story is the, uh, the animator took the scene that I had finished, and it looked really good, I mean, you could flip it, and it was, it was actually Fred had just inherited a bunch of money and he was jumping up and down in the backyard around Dino, who kept turning his head, you know, like, what's wrong with this crazy Fred? And, you know, I kept saying, you know, Fred doesn't quite look, I don't think Fred looks quite like Fred does. And I took it to the animator and said, you know, this, this looks really good. He says, but what you're supposed to do is actually, if, if I don't quite draw Fred right, you're supposed to fix it. And I was, you know, I was green as can be, and it was like, I thought I'm supposed to follow what the animator did. I didn't realize I was actually supposed to, you know, plus his work if I could. <laughs> so that first scene, luckily, he was jumping up and down and running around, so you really couldn't see that it wasn't drawn as well as it could have been. And so, so I kind of goofed that first scene up. But that's kind of my first uh, first experience. And it was, it was a tough one because uh, it wasn't just the character sitting there turning his head. I mean, he was jumping up and down and going Yahoo and all this. And as my first scene, it was pretty intimidating. I remember that episode of the of the uh, Fred and Barney show. I, my mom my mom was a big Flintstones fan, so anytime it was on, she'd pull me in, and which made me a Flintstones fan. And if I remember right, because the Fred and Barney show was on NBC, and it came out in like the late seventies. I think it was I was I was uh, either three or four when it came out. But like my mom also had some videotapes of it later. But the, I think that episode that you're referring to was an episode called Haunted Inheritance. Don't ask me how I know that. It's just my inner nerd coming out. <laughs> but um, I well, that sounds sounds like it definitely could be that. And uh, you know, the difficult thing for me was that I did all this work mm -hmm. and I have no record of it. Mm. So I spent a lot of time out there looking at different websites, trying to find people that might have videotaped the shows and you know put it to DVD or something. I found a that series, the Fred and Barney Show series. Mm -hmm. You know, the quality's not really good, but at least I have it now. Yes. And, uh, Actually, all the animators or all the assistants, because there were four of us that were hired all on the same day, 
And so we kind of had a little, uh, that Saturday morning, everybody came over to my house and we watched that first episode. See, it kind of, of it, it kind of amazes me how, um, how, like with animation, how, you know, we can find some stuff now and, and things are slowly starting to come out more and more often. Now, granted, with a lot of the Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears stuff, Warner Brothers is, rele- is, is releasing a lot of that in, um, in like, I guess, assortment packages like uh, Saturday Morning Cartoons Volumes 1 from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But, um, you know, stuff like Super Friends, there are com- actual complete sets. You can get a, le- a legitimate piece of the work that you've accomplished with, like, Challenge, Challenge of the Super Friends. But stuff like Fred and Barney, it, it is very um, hard to find. Yeah. And, you would think, and you would think with the technology that we have today and um, the things that we're able to do to watch media, you'd think that stuff would be easily available now. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, I've got the entire Super Friends series, so when that came out, I just jumped right on that. You know, I went out and got all the He-Mans and the She-Ra's and... So I've kind of spent the last maybe five or ten years really going out and trying to find everything that I've worked on, even toys. I buy a lot of the – right now I'm looking for some of the Black Star toys. Oh, awesome. Wow. (laughs) Because that's actually the first show I was an animator on. I was an assistant animator on, like, the Super Friends and Flintstones and stuff, but I became a full-fledged animator when I was working on Brave Star. Oh, just that that cool dragon warlock, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I didn't buy the toys when I should have, and now I'm kind of paying the price for it because it's going for quite a bit on eBay. Yeah, a lot of those toys that were based off of uh, filmation properties from back when, they'll get you. <laughs> they'll definitely get your wallet. I still wish I had my original uh, He-Man uh, He-Man toys, and I remember as a kid finding Black Star in a toy store for me back when, uh, way back when. Um, in my neighborhood, was always difficult to find. So um, yeah, you're not alone. Black stuff oh, was all done by Lube, and uh, they didn't have real good distribution on it. So they, you know, it was hard to find even when you went to the stores when it was brand new. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as we did Brave Star, which was like the last series that Filmation did before they uh, sold out to a different company, so I did go out and get all those. I got the Tech Packs and the the brave star and all those characters oh that's awesome and and i definitely i definitely want to talk to you about brave star um later on in this interview but um before we get into that i know adam is a very very big super friends fan and um i'm a big jack kirby fan when you were working on super friends and like a lot of the or the um hannah barbera slash um ruby spears type stuff did you were you able to interact a lot with um jack kirby i'll tell you i was there for probably about a year uh, and I had no idea Jack Kirby was working there, because um, I mean I would have, I would have done something to, you know, find him. <laughs> and see that we had two different buildings. There was a, a, the main building, which is where you know, Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera. That was their office building, and the, the cameras, the animation cameras were over there. But they had built a new building right next door, and that was for the animators and the assistant animators. And so we really didn't get to go over to the other building that often, and that's the old building that was there since Hanna-Barbera first started. And um, one day, I'm sitting there, and I'm just drawing. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the Smurfs I was working on. And I sat right near the window, and I looked out, and there was a bridge. And it wasn't even a covered bridge. It was just a bridge that went from one building to the other. And I looked out, and... Here's this little short guy with this gigantic portfolio walking across the bridge. And, of course, I immediately recognize him. And everybody else doesn't know who he is because they're not comic book people. They're animation people. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so I went running out and kind of made like I was just heading over to the other bit. Oh, my gosh, you're Jack Kirby, you know, that kind of thing. And so I kind of did that oh, three or four times when uh, he was crossing the bridge, and he would always just stop, put the portfolio down. You know, he shook my hand. And then after a while, every time I'd see him, he'd say, hey, kid. You know, I guess he didn't wasn't real good with names. <laughs> he probably had so many names to remember. He couldn't remember mine. But uh, so we had a number of times where I talked to him about, you know, how much I loved his comic book work. And, uh, and I still didn't really realize he was doing quite as much animation work as he was. He was designing stuff right and left. And uh, a lot of it never saw the light of day, but I'm sure you've seen some of his work in all these different magazines. Like uh, one of my favorite uh, magazines is the Jack Kirby Collector. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually had, they actually had uh, one of the, I think it was like, one of the early issues of that, uh, they were asking for anybody that had any of his animation work. And I had a set of model sheets that you could clearly see that Jack Kirby uh, drew the hand and the sun sword and all that sort of stuff. So I sent in uh, a Xerox of that, and they, they put that in the magazine, and I got like a you know free, free issue or something for that. But uh, the thing that got me is that Jack Kirby actually said, uh, he gave me his, his, I couldn't believe this, he gave me his phone number and his address. And he said, you know, anytime you want, uh, just come on out, like at lunchtime, and we'll, we'll have lunch, and you can look around my house and stuff. And I'll tell you, I was so intimidated that I thought I would be bothering him. And it wasn't until years later that I found out that he did this all the time. Wow. And he had people in the house. And, you know, I had another friend that I worked with in animation, and his name is Larry White, and he was a huge Kirby fan, too, in fact. We'd go to the San Diego convention, and I'm filling in holes in my comic collection. He's buying uh, Kirby pages, and he must have 100 Kirby pages from Fantastic 410. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he could buy houses with what he's got. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he knew that I had the number, and we kept saying, we got to go over there, we got to go. And, you know, we never did. We, we just were too chicken to do it. Because he only lived about a half an hour away from where I lived. And uh, when, I, when he passed away, it was just, uh, I just felt, you know, I felt like, gosh, there it is. There, I, I don't have that chance. It was always I could do it tomorrow. And all of a sudden, I couldn't do it tomorrow. It was a rough day. I'd imagine that to see his stuff animated and the designs that he did, you know, for the Superpower show, let alone the fact that the new gods like Desaad and especially Darkseid were being animated certainly must have been, you know, fulfilling for him. Oh, I would imagine. I know that, uh, you know, anytime as a creator, if you see something in motion, um, you know, and it's your creation, it's got, it's got to make you feel pretty darn good. When I saw characters like the Fourth World stuff and the um, in Dark Side new gods, all of that. As a kid, I didn't like it at all. I, I just, I, I didn't. And I, I, th- I think a lot of it just was, my mind just wasn't prepared for those types of high concept ideas. But now, now that I'm older, I say since, probably since about the age of 25, over the last nine to 10 years, I get it now. And I love it. And I just think it's, to me, it's amazing. So when I see it now, I have such a better appreciation of it than when I did back then. I think a lot of that, Sean, has to do with like the fact that we had to catch up with the comics. The comics didn't have to catch up because 
like Kirby's style that uh, you know Tom was talking about. I mean, it was just so progressive to the point of it's almost like he was reinventing storytelling. And I mean, if you take a look at some of the fourth world stuff, like especially uh, the Jimmy Olsen and the Forever People stuff, that was geared toward us, you know. But we weren't, we weren't, I guess, cognitively ready for it. Have we finally caught up with what we're able to do on the screen? Or do you think there's still a lot to be, I guess, uncovered with animation? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it has come so far so fast. You know, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, leaps and bounds ahead. But what they're doing now, boys, it's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, you talk about the fourth world stuff. And uh, one of the difficulties was the Kirby's style kind of changed. I mean, I think he hit his stride when he was doing Fantastic Four and Thor like uh, late late 60s when it was Silver Surfer was coming in and, and the Hercules uh, series with uh, Thor when they first met. His stuff was drawn so perfectly and just unbelievable layouts. Uh, so that when he moved over to the fourth world, he kind of stylized things a little bit and he was, he was getting older and he was kind of losing his eyesight and he didn't want anybody to know that he was having trouble seeing. And that's why you'll see the stuff that... Uh, I wish that Mike Royer had not followed Kirby's pencils perfectly. I wish he had done what I, as an assistant animator, was supposed to do, and that is kind of pull whatever looks kind of weird back to what would look good. Mm-hmm. Because Kirby liked Royer because Royer would do exactly what he drew. He wasn't changing things. Now, Joe Sinnott used to change stuff. You know, if there was a face that didn't quite look right, he'd fix it. And I think the, the fourth world and especially superpowers, uh, really suffers because as Jack got older, the power was still there, but he had lost kind of the... I, and I think it was through his eyesight that he just wasn't able to get things symmetrical anymore, and the characters kind of looked off-kilter. Sometimes he would draw their legs too short. I mean, there's a beautiful splash page of um, Big Barda in one of the splash pages in The New Gods, while she looks really nice, her legs are so short that it really looks funny. And I wish that Royer would have gone in there and just leave her legs there, but just kind of shrink the body down a little bit so it was a little bit more proportional. And I think that's what a lot of kids were turned off with, uh, the fourth world, is because it was so stylized with the square knees and the square fingers. And it was really a huge departure from what he was doing in the 40s and 50s. And the 60s is where I think he really hit his stride. I mean, early Fantastic Four is a little crude, but once you start to get into uh, yeah, the 30s and 40s and 50s issue-wise, uh, it was just untouchable. I don't think anybody's ever drawn any better, ever. You talked about uh, animation and how um, you know we've seen so many advances. And in the United States, you really don't see a lot of... Um studios that are solely based for television animation i mean you know you have pixar and you have like a lot of movie studios there now that now are starting to have their own animation divisions again like sony uh universal um for a while um 20th century fox had one until they closed it down when titan ae um was not a success and uh what was the other one they did i want to say it was uh oh i can't remember off the top of my head but they had another film that didn't fare too well either in the uh, in, in the mainstream, and Warner Brothers also had an, an like a movie division, but they've always had stuff like um, Hanna Barbera, which is now under their belt. Um, they so they've always had an animation division, period. But you don't see a lot of um, 
animation studios that are solely focused in the States for television now. Um, back in, like, 1980, you had Hanna-Barbera, uh, Ruby Spears, uh, DePatty De Freeling, uh, Marvel Studios, and Filmation Studios. And then there's a period of time in, eight, in the 80s where Filmation and DIC literally ran the show when it came to syndicated animation. But you don't really see that much anymore. And I know how we watch media and how we consume it has changed. And the days of afternoon cartoons for kids on syndicated television is pretty much gone because of cable. I want to take it back to the days where we had uh, major TV animation studios. There was a strike, an animator strike, which I had no idea about until you uh, provided us with a timeline. In 1980, there was an um, animator strike. Now, what was that like being in the midst of all that? Yeah, it was, it was really difficult because, uh, like I said, I gave up my job as a bus driver making pretty good money, and all of a sudden, we're going on strike. And I'm going, why are we going on strike? You know, they're telling me that, that uh, the studios are thinking of sending the work overseas to Japan or Korea, you know, because they could pay a lot, lot less for the animators over there. And the, the, uh, the whole union was kind of fixated on, we got to get more money for the animators. And it's like, you know, we were making plenty of money. We didn't need more money. What we needed was more of a guarantee that we were going to have work every year. We, we lucked out this first strike because um, the Hanna-Barbera, you know, if they don't meet their deadlines uh, to put shows on the air, there's like severe fines, like maybe a $100,000 fine for missing a deadline mm. and an air date. So they were not ready to send work overseas yet. They hadn't sent, set everything up yet. So they caved, and they gave us the extra money, and we went back to work. And it took like maybe a month and a half or so of striking um, to get that. But I could see the writing on the wall that this next time, because we only signed like a two-year contract or a three-year contract or something, and I knew that the next time around, they were going to be ready. And they were going to have everything all, you know, they'll have it in boxes ready to ship because they knew that we were going to go on strike again. And it did happen, and this time, I don't remember how long the strike went on, but we just had to just say, okay, and we just had to capitulate to whatever they wanted, and uh, they still ended up uh, sending a majority of the work overseas, and it was kind of the death of animation in the U.S., because within a, within a year, Depatic Feeling was gone. Uh, the only studio really left was uh, Marvel, and Hanna-Barbera, but Marvel was doing everything overseas. Hanna-Barbera was doing like 90% of it overseas. So that, being a young animator, you know, all the animators that have been working there since the, the 50s and 60s, when Hanna-Barbera first started, they kept their jobs. Hmm. Lucky for me, uh, Ruby Spears was there, and we start, so I got in at Ruby Spears. That's when I got to work on Thunder the Barbarian, which... You know, that was kind of my cup of tea. I mean, working on Jack Kirby's show, and uh, just a classic show. You know, it's just one of those that I wish it could have gone on longer, but Ruby Spears was having difficulties, too, and, and they eventually, within a year, went out of business as well. And they actually just moved over across from Hanna-Barbera, got a little teeny building, and they were just sending everything overseas, too. So it really was kind of the death of, of animation in the United States, with the exception of one studio, and that's Filmation. 
And uh, if not for filmation, I mean, I probably would have been out of the business uh, only three years after I started. I, I just I, I just find that utter, utterly amazing. And you know, and these are things like as kids, we don't really pay any attention to. We just want to we just want to make sure that we're able to watch cartoons day in and day out, and then have fun. And just to hear of all this tor- turmoil within just ut- utterly amazes me. And I and I do find it I find it utterly sad that we don't have that tv animation studio base anymore i I miss that because i mean yes i know there are many ways nowadays for people to create content um you know the with the internet and with technology prices you know dropping and and things like animation comics and all that stuff the average person or like or the person that didn't have the opportunity to do it before now kind of has a more of a chance to do it but the outlets and like those studios to push that stuff to networks has dwindled away so even though we've come closer, we're, st- we're still further away, in my opinion, um, to providing as much animation as possible uh, to the masses. So, I mean, that's, that's just my personal opinion, mind you, but um, it still just amazes me. But anyway, I, I digress. I'm known to go on tangents, so I apologize. Um, while working on Thundar um, and with Ruby Spear stuff, once again, we mentioned uh, Jack Kirby. And one thing that I didn't know is that during um, a lot of the Ruby Spears stuff, like uh, the Centurions, um, let's see, Chuck Norris, Karate Commandos, um, and all these other things that, Ru- that Ruby Spears had done, like in the mid to late 80s, yeah, to the mid to late 80s, a lot of the uh, concepts and stuff were done by artists, legendary artists such as Jack Kirby, uh, Gil Kane, Alfredo Acala. And as a kid, I didn't pay any attention to this, but when I had a DVD on the other day and I saw that and I saw their names, I paused it. Because once again, my mind, you know, my mind just couldn't translate the fact that a gentleman that's working in comics, like you said, was also working in animation. I had no idea he was that involved in animation. Yeah, and, and I really didn't either. Like I said, until I saw him on that bridge, I had no idea Jack Kirby was doing animation. I guess I had heard something about him doing storyboards for that Fantastic Four show that had Herbie the Robot in it. But, uh, you know, it never dawned on me that he was actually working in the studio, and it was more of a job than his comics work. He kind of let his comics work work slip and just decided to... And which is great for him because he got uh, well, he got full benefits for his family, and he, I'm sure he got paid much better than he did for... Uh... But the difficult thing with, with the animation industry is that for some reason... Uh, there's a whole lot of people that work in that industry that really are not comic book fans. And so there's a whole bunch of people that really didn't know who the heck Jack Kirby was. And I'm just like, my tongue's dropping on the ground because Jack Kirby's there. And everybody's like, well, who the heck is Jack Kirby? And so, uh, and, and this is kind of the reason why most superhero TV series never quite hit the mark because the people that were doing them weren't comic book fans. They would kind of change the concepts of what a comic book would be like to be made into an animated series. They would kind of make it a little bit more for kids when you could still make it for adults as well as kids, but they didn't. They just kind of dumbed it down a little bit. That's definitely evident if you do a a compare-contrast with, um, say, for instance, you look at Super Friends and then you compare it to a cartoon uh, like Justice League Unlimited. Or you take the filmation Batman uh, from 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 back when and compare it to Batman the animated series, but um, but no, you're absolutely right. You're 100 percent right on that. Because one of my favorite uh, superhero cartoons is the Fleischer Superman series. And have you seen those, the Fleischer Superman uh, from the 40s? Yes, I have. Yes. Yep. Oh gosh, that stuff is just animated so well. 
And I always said, what we've got to do is we've got to get away from drawing these characters so complicated that we can't animate them really good. We have to simplify them like that Superman was. And that's exactly what they did with Batman Adventures and the Justice League uh, Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Is the characters really don't look human. They've been stylized, but they're so easy to draw that you don't, you don't have to worry about wasting a lot of time on details. I think a lot of that really is reflected in the the comic books that DC has put out in the wake of Justice League Unlimited or Batman the Animated Series or Batman Brave and the Bold because they are easily copyable. And I, I mean that in the, in the highest regard possible because, you know, the Joker from Batman Brave and the Bold is Dick Sprang as far as I'm concerned. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and they are able to to hire just maybe not under exclusive contracts but they're able to hire for the Johnny DC line a couple guys from Australia a couple guys from England a couple guys from the states you know and have the same style as the cartoon or the new DC Super Friends toy line and stuff that they have out right now now uh, Tom you talked about you know simplifying stuff and i i think probably one of my favorite not just not comic artists but just designers was Alex Toth. And I'm wondering, like, how would you as an animator characterize his style? Because obviously that had a lot to do with um, the Super Friends. And I'm wondering, like, in terms of animation, like, how does that rank as you just ranked the Fleischer Superman reels? Uh, Yeah, well, I I don't think there was anybody better at taking uh, complicated-looking characters and simplifying them down so they're animatable, but yet not losing much in the way they look. In other words, he didn't dumb it down to the point where it just looks like some cartoony piece of junk. It still looked like it could be a comic book. And, and another person that did that was, in fact, I worked with him at Filmation, Paul Smith, and he ended up doing X-Men for, for a while, and his X-Men looked like an animated series. I mean, there was not all this cross-hatching and shadows everywhere. He just simplified it, and it looked great. I just loved his work. My next question was kind of a follow-up about style, because... I mean, I can easily recognize a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, you know, with, with the sound off. Let's not forget all the sound effects <laughs> that, that really give those cartoons away. If you take a look at the stuff that Hanna-Barbera produced, whether it was, you know, the Jetsons or the Flintstones or, or anything along those lines, you know, to the like more anthropomorphic uh, characters like uh, Top Cat, for example, is that they definitely had a house style. And if you compare, like, the Super Friends to that house style, of course, they don't really match. But that's really, I think, what we're seeing a lot of now, especially with uh, the work that Bruce Tim and, and Paul Denny have done with Batman, the animated series. And, Sean, like you had said, Justice League Unlimited, probably more so than any other ones. And I'm wondering, Tom, how did Hanna-Barbera kind of finalize and settle or maybe even tweak their house style for their animation because I think you can draw a pretty good comparison between, you know, when Marvel had a house style, you know, a few decades ago. Yeah, well, I think what they did, and I think it was smart, is they realized that 
because Joe Barbera had a lot to do with the character designs. That's why Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, Hokey Wolf, they all kind of have that same feel to them. And uh, when, they, when they realized when they were going to do more realistic characters, um, like Johnny Quest, you know, one of the first ones, which when I was a kid was just like, holy smoke, does that look good? Because mm-hmm. usually the stuff looked like crap when they tried to do human beings, and all of a sudden it was looking so good. And they went out and got people that could, that could draw human beings in a simplified way so that you could animate them really well and, uh, and make it so believable. And that's why I think you see the big difference between, you know, the action-adventure Hanna-Barbera and the cartoon Hanna-Barbera. Um, I mean, there's a storyboard artist uh, that did a lot of the, uh, the Top Cat, which, of course, Top Cat, in case you didn't know, uh, his initials are TC, my initials are TC. <laughs> so my, my email address is actually Top Cat. <laughs> he kind of is my... Uh, I was at the Cub Scouts when that cartoon came on, and I just loved the cartoon. So, I mean, I've got Top Cat stuff everywhere in my uh, art room. But I digress. And uh, so I think that's the reason. I think that's why you see the, diff- the difference in style is they didn't just say, let's keep the guys that we've got now that are designing the cartoons and let's turn them out on the superhero stuff. I want to go back to the period of time um, when you were working for Filmation and you said you had mentioned in your timeline that um, your first series that you that uh, that you worked on for filmation is Black Star, um, and the, well, first series as a is a director, if I'm not mistaken. No, that was my first series as an animator. Oh, as an animator. I, okay, I'm sorry, animator. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I came up when when Ruby Spears, uh, which would, Ruby Spears was a great place to work. I really loved working there. I met a couple of really nice guys. Um, in fact, one of the guys. Um, had worked on Beanie and Cecil, the original Beanie and Cecil. And uh, that was one of my favorite shows as a kid, too. I just loved all the puns and the double entendre and stuff like that. And uh, one day, he, uh, after I told him I loved Beanie and Cecil so much, he called me into his office and he said, uh, here, there's somebody on the phone that wants to talk to you. So I kind of, you know, hesitantly take the phone and I go, hello? Hi, my, my name's Bob Clampett. Tongue hit the floor, and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is Bob Clampett? As a consequence, I talked to him for, like, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes just about how much I loved his, his cartoons and uh, the Bugs Bunny stuff he did. Because he's my favorite uh, Warner Brothers uh, director. I really just, it's just, his stuff is wild. And I really like the wild Daffy Duck and the wild Bugs Bunny. So he actually sent me a couple of items uh, from the Beanie and Cecil show that were autographed. And uh, those are the same thing. They're up in my studio here. All of a sudden, the, the show we were mainly working on was uh, Heathcliff the Cat. There was a director's uh, or an actor's strike, like, you know, just your regular actors went on, on strike. And that Mel, Mel Blank, who did the voice of Heathcliff, was, gonna, was on strike as well. So he couldn't do the soundtracks. Uh, and if you don't have the soundtrack, you can't animate to it. So we were going to get laid off. And they kept telling us we weren't going to be laid off, but I really didn't believe them. So I real quick uh, got on the phone and, and got a hold of Filmation and found out that they were hiring assistant animators. You know, at this point, that's all I was, was an assistant animator. But it was like, gosh, here, I've got, I just feel like I've got to jump ship, even though I love Ruby Spears so much. 
I found myself working over in what was called uh, Filmation West, which was over in Canoga Park, about maybe 10 miles away from the main studio. And that's where all the an uh, assistant animators were working, and we were actually working on the sound stages. I mean, my animation desk was literally amongst the rocks from, like, Jason Star Command or <sighs> Arc 2 or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wasn't even in the main building. They, they were so pressed for getting people... Uh, a desk that they just started sticking them out in the live action section. Yeah, so I worked there for a while, and that's when we were working on like Flash Gordon, um, The Lone Ranger. I think Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids had just started, and I kept I kept saying, uh, you know, I want to become an animator. I, I I love being an assistant, but I want to be the one that draws the character, and make a move. So the uh, Doris Plow, who was the head of the assistants, said, you know, over. Filmation East, which is the main studio, uh, they're looking for somebody to kind of do corrections so that when we make mistakes, which everybody makes mistakes, we need somebody over there to fix stuff so they don't have to ship it all the way back over here and then we have to fix it and then ship it all the way back over there. So she suggested that I go over and do that. She said the work's not going to be as much fun for a while, but at least you'll be amongst the directors and you'll be able to, you know, show them your stuff. So every night I'd work a little bit overtime, and I'd just sit there and I'd draw some stuff real quick. Like the very first thing I ever did was just Superman kind of flying away from you past the camera, and then he kind of gets, so he's only a couple inches tall, and he kind of stops and just kind of hovers there, and then he kind of anticipates and just heads towards the camera and, and goes flying by. And we had a, uh, a video system to do um, animation tests. So I would take it in there and just shoot this whole thing, you know, one one frame at a time. And it was like about 200-something drawings. And most of them were real sketchy, but it just kind of filled in the action. And I did another one with a cartoony thing where the guy kind of, you know, his legs start turning like a circle, and it kind of backs up a little bit and then zips off where you see those lines falling them out. So I did a couple things like that and showed it to some of the directors, and that's when they said, you know, we're going to give you a shot to, to work as an animator now. And uh, like I said the first thing I did, I remember it was it was Brave Star, and he was coming. He was riding on Warlock, and he kind of came in from the right, and there were a bunch of the Trobits down below on their ship, and then he just kind of took off and went off in the distance. And that was the very first time I just that was my animation instead of just somebody else's animation that I was you know cleaning up. And that was a terrific show. And the only reason it uh, went off the air is that uh, whoever was uh, buying the show from us wanted to cut the budget oh and it it was one of the first shows that had a lot of special effects in it and we just felt if we cut the budget on it and took out the special effects it would kind of lose you know people would think we're just schlocking it out mm. and so they decided just to not go ahead with another season i rem I'm, i have the uh, actual the dvd set of um black star that was released by um, BCI Eclipse. Uh, now somebody else owns the rights to it. I bought it um, in clearance at a bookstore not too long ago, and I watched a uh, commentary by... Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, he was the head of the studio, Lou Scheimer. Thank you, Lou Scheimer. Um, it, if, if memory serves me right, um, they had a talk with, Lou, with, with uh, Lou, Lou, Lou Scheimer, and he said that originally... Black Star, he wanted Black Star to be an African-American character, but the network wasn't hearing it. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't like the idea, so they changed it up a bit um, in order to get the show on, um, on the network, which, which, which um, blew my mind, because I had no idea that that was even the case. I didn't even know that was going on behind the scenes. 
So, um, you know, that's a pretty. Well, you know, I've got a, uh, you know, I've got a full set of model sheets from that show as well, and there also were a couple of promotional drawings uh, that, I, and I don't even know where I got them from, but you know, I xerox them and, and have them in my collection, and it was kind of uh, a little bit more of a comic book feel uh, to the drawings, you know, a lot more detail, and he looks completely different than he did in the series, and you know, he could be. He, he could be uh, an African-American now that you said that, because he does have a different look to him than, than what he ended up being. But since it's a you know black and white drawing, I really can't tell. Mm-hmm. But it definitely looked a lot different. But, you know, gosh, I still really love the series. I'm, I'm just really sad that they didn't go another season with it. So do I. It's, it's, still, it's still one of my favorites. Um, even, even as a kid, you know, being as a, as a kid, you know, imagination just runs free. You all, I always hoped for that uh, He-Man Black Star team up, <laughs> but uh, but you know, unfortunately, that never happened. But um, filmation really just like set the um, set the mark for syndicated cartoons with the introduction of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Um, when it was picked up for syndication, it was one of the first cartoon series to be shown on television five days a week. And it's not that it was a, a show that was uh, ported in from overseas like um, World Events did with Voltron and, um, and other types of shows because a lot of them were, were ported from overseas and then redubbed. But this was an official United States uh, animated show or you know, a show that started in the States that was syndicated five days a week. And you were part of that as well as um, She-Ra and uh, Filmation's Ghostbusters as well, right? Yeah, in fact, we, um, I guess after we got done with Black Star, um, you know, we had a couple other things. We had like Heckle and Jekyll, and we had uh, Mighty Mouse, but they were just, you know, not done well at all. I mean, you know, the, the animators uh, didn't really take to heart the old cartoons, and they didn't animate it. And they also had these new rules where you couldn't hit anybody and have, you know, birds or stars go around their head. Uh, so, I mean, what are you going to do with Tom and Jerry or Heckle and Jekyll if you can't smack them with a mallet and have birds and stars going around their head? So it really, uh, although it was fun to work on some of these classic characters that uh, I grew up with, you know, it, it just, they were just terrible shows. And oh, I always leaned towards the Black Star and stuff because it was an action-adventure show. Mm-hmm. And when they decided to do He-Man, I, I guess I was probably laid off for about three months because usually it was it was a very seasonal job. You'd work your butt off for like eight or nine months, and then you'd have two or three months off while the networks decided if they were going to you know renew the series or if they were going to order some new series. And you never knew. I mean, uh, there's one season at Filmation where we thought we were going to have three or four shows, and next thing you know, all we got was Gilgan's Planet. Wow. And they ended up just really for an entire year, nobody had work except the directors, and the directors just became the animators. So right after that, though, uh, we heard about this He-Man thing, and we actually had to come in, and it was such a big deal. We had to come in and do an eight-hour animation test. It was like all day long. You came in, they gave you a couple of layouts, and they said they want He-Man off in the distance to take three or four steps towards the camera and swing that sword and then kind of stand as if he's ready to fight. And so you only had eight hours to do this, (laughs) and it was... It was pretty intense um, because this is the first time that they were looking for people that really could animate because there was always, because of the demands of the amount of people we needed, there was always some people that snuck through that really, 
would probably not get the job. And uh, so next thing you know, I've got to go in there and take this test. And luckily, I, I did a really nice job in the test, and it came out really good. And uh, so the next thing you know, I'm working on He-Man. And the difficulty with He-Man, and this is kind of the wrap that Filmation takes, because we were the only animation studio in the United States, we had to compete. Like, maybe the episodes were going to be $250,000 a piece. And over in Japan, they could do it for 100000 So how are we going to compete with that? So we came up with this stock system, which I'm sure if you've ever watched He-Man, you know that anytime He-Man turned his head, it was a close-up, and he turned it exactly the same way because we just had cells that were already done, already painted, and every time he turned his head they would just shoot those same cells over again so we didn't have to redraw it. Yes. In the past, we used to redraw everything. So, so Filmation kind of takes the rap for that because the, literally you would get like 10 or 12 scenes uh, to work on, which is like in a week you might do, I don't know, 20 seconds, 25 seconds worth of work. And in those scenes, the director would say, okay, this one here, take some time and get it right, and this other one, just have them talk. So all the mouth did was move. He blinked a couple times, and that's it. And it's only because we had to compete with uh, the, the low prices that the other companies were able to get. So we had to really kind of cheapen out the animation. I mean, many of those people that were working at Filmation ended up working on, you know, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, and Tarzan, and all the Disney features, but they weren't allowed to kind of just, you know, do the best. Plus, He-Man... And all the characters in He-Man had to kind of stick to what the toy looked like. Mm-hmm. And if, if it was very, we called it pencil, pencil mileage. In other words, your, your pencil had to move a whole lot because you had belts and straps. And, you know, there were just so many things going on. That sounds like a, every image comic from the 90s ever with all the belts and pouches and stuff. Yeah, don't get me going on image. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's exactly right. It just wasn't animation friendly. And, and you'll notice, uh, even with, with Brave Star, um, you'll notice that He-Man's kind of like Maltese cross that he had in the middle of his chest. Well, they had to put it in the middle because what we would do is if, if the character was going to run off to the right, we would just flop the drawings, and then he could run off to the left also. Well, if the sheriff has a badge over his left uh, left chest, when you flip the scene, the, the badge is going to be on his right chest. So to keep from having to keep redrawing the badge in different places, they tended to put everything right in the center. That way, no matter which way you flip them, it would still look good. One, one of the troubles was, I forget what the, the character that had the claw, one arm was claw and the other arm was... Uh, With a trap jaw? Yeah. That's the one. And he had, I think it's his right arm, was mechanical. So when he would turn and run the other way, it would be his left arm. Some of the, you know, hiccups and stuff aside, and I think, Tom, you can even attribute that to, you know, like when you flipped, when you flipped cells and, and, and reused them, I think you can chalk a lot of that up to just tricks of the trade and stuff that, that you guys use just stuff. But looking at some of the voice casts that have worked on your shows, and I'm looking at names like, my gosh, Ted Cassidy, who, of course, was uh, famous for playing Lurch on The Addams Family. I'm looking at names like Danny Dark, who played Superman, or... 
Stan Jones, who was Luthor, or my personal favorite animation voice artist, who was uh, Frank Welker. Uh, he did the voice of Mix, Mixus Pitlick and, uh, and Toy Man, among others. And I'm wondering at what point when you're working on a show with whatever studio you're under that you realize that it's going to be a real knockdown drag out quality program because it's one of those, all the pieces matter, especially with, you know, animation or comics. And I'm just wondering, like, what have you seen studios do that you know is going to, you know, be of benefit to the show, you know, besides promotion and things along those lines? Well, definitely one of the big things, and Filmation had difficulty with this because it can't, again, because of the budgets, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed the uh, the credits on filmation shows. Lou Scheimer did voices. His daughter Erica Scheimer did voices. I mean, they used a lot of the family. In fact, I think it was Mrs. Wooker from uh, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Lou Scheimer's wife. <laughs> so now, early on, they had like William Conrad from Cannon was uh, the Lone Ranger. Ted Knight from Mary Tyler Moore, you know... Uh, Ted Baxter, mm-hmm. he did some voices for us, uh, but later on they were really cutting corners. And Alan Oppenheimer did a lot of voices. He was like Skeletor, and uh, he was pretty versatile. But you know, Lou Scheimer, eh, you know, he really shouldn't have done voices, and his daughter wasn't really very good. But they had to cut corners somehow. But with the Hanna Barbera, they really went out and got you know first-rate people. I mean, there were other people that could have done. Barney Rubble, but Mel Blanc was the man. I mean, he could do all the different animals and uh, all the dinosaurs and the woolly mammoths and everything. I think that helped their cartoons a lot was the voice work. You know, Dawes Butler, who is like equal to Mel Blanc. I mean, he did all the main characters, uh, Yogi and Huck and Jinx the Cat, and he was excellent. And he really didn't get the, uh, the accolades that Mel Blanc did, but he was incredible and very important to the uh, success of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. And now, now like I said, the Filmation stuff, they, it's, it's really rough because Filmation was kind of the, the butt of the joke, you know, because they really had to cut corners so much that uh, it was frustrating at times, but you would take heart in the fact that you'd get a really good scene and just say, okay, this one's the one I'm going to put all the time and effort into. And then I had one time somebody whipped, whipped uh, He-Man and he grabbed the whip and then pulled him and kind of did a little swing him over his head and threw him off, off stage. And instead of just kind of doing it really cheap, I did a whole thing where as he was swinging him over his head, you know, as he came towards you, the feet got really big, and then it would go off in the distance and be small. And so it, it was a really good quality piece of animation that the rest of the week I had to just have him standing there just talking. But at least I got that one good thing, and it, it kind of helped keep you... Um, becoming bored with just doing head turns and raising an arm up and waving i just want to talk about like the last thing and you've you've mentioned it in many spots um already but it was like the last thing that filmation had did as far as i know as far as i know in my mind and that was a brave star um which was the cosmic western um which i thought was uh, beautifully animated and well put together and I think, personally, I think it, it was ahead of its time, honestly, not only from a animation standpoint, but also from a uh, toy standpoint with uh, having interactive toys, uh, such as the stuff like Brave Star, uh, Captain, pa- Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. That stuff was a little bit ahead of its time, I don't, and I don't think people 
um, were that ready for that much interactivity with a, a cartoon series or a kid series for that matter. I always enjoyed uh, Brave Star's look and uh, look, feel, and texture of that whole of that whole series. And I was sad um, when it went away, and also when Filmation went away. I was just wondering if there was anything anything that you haven't told us about as far as Brave Star or um, when Filmation closed its doors uh, that you may um, may be able to share with us. Sure. Yeah. Um, Brave Star. I agree with you. I think it was way ahead of its time. Uh, I don't know if you've watched the uh, series called Firefly that's on now, which is like a uh, Western in space. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it, it immediately brought to mind Brave Star. I mean, you know, the, the, the idea is the same. I mean, it's, it's the futuristic space uh, Western. But with Brave Star, what I really liked, you know, the one thing I, I got, I had difficult with, and, I mean, maybe you've noticed that as well as I did, but with He-Man, Shira, and then Filmation's Ghostbusters, and then finally on to Brave Star, they just got into this formula of one main bad guy, like Primeval, Tex-Hex, or Skeletor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has a whole bunch of henchmen that are odd, and every show, it never had a different bad guy. It was always the same bad guy. And they got a little too much of an afor- you know, into a formula for my taste. Yeah. And I think they could have done much better if they just had come up with like four or five different major... Vi- I mean, have your Doctor Doom and, and your, um, you know, Galactus or your you know, maybe Puppet Master and just have three or four or five different villains that you could bring in. So the show's got a little repetitious yeah. as far as I was concerned. But, I, that being said, Brave Star, the backgrounds were amazing. Uh, they really took some time on doing those backgrounds, and the character design was good. Now, I don't know, have you seen the feature? I was never able to see, see the feature, and I was told that originally what was supposed to happen was, was that the feature was supposed to come out first, followed by the series later, but did, it, did that actually happen the other way around? You know, I don't remember. I do remember that we had worked on the show... And it was coming, uh, it was near Christmas, so we were going to have, like, we usually got a couple weeks off at Christmas. Mm-hmm. They came around just before we were about to get uh, the Christmas break, and they said, does anybody want to work through Christmas break? And everybody was like, you know, gosh, we're pretty tired. We really don't want to work. You know, we, we looked forward to the time off. Then they mentioned they were going to be doing a uh, Brave Star feature, and we would be able to animate more fully. You know, they weren't, they weren't going to use stock footage and so me and my best three buddies that uh you know in fact i think i mentioned his name is mark toss and i always have trouble saying alex toss because i'm so used to saying mike toss <laughs> but i know it's both but i always slip on that one but anyway so i decided yes i will uh, work through christmas because i really wanted to work on the feature and i did uh, quite a bit of the opening sequence I believe they were on like a spaceship or something, and the the main old Indian was in a suspended animation tube, and it opened up, and some you know mist comes out, and it was a pretty fun fun thing to work on. If you ever get a chance to get that, because I just bought it uh, just recently, mm-hmm. and you can see the the animation is much much better than the TV series. Now it's still not like a Disney quality thing because we still had to do it in like just a couple weeks. Right. But you're going to see the special effects, and it's it's a whole lot better than the TV series. And 
pick it up because it's really good. And, and what's really nice is they have that director's cut where you can listen to the directors and uh, and Lou Scheimer kind of going scene by scene, talking about what's going on. <laughs> I've been looking for the movie and the actual complete series. And I know when BCI Eclipse, who had the rights for a good period of time to all the filmation stuff, went under, those rights are now owned by somebody else. And I don't know if they're putting those back out on DVD or not. Some things they are because they're re-releasing She-Ra and I think He-Man this year. There's a different company that's doing it doing it this year. It's, it's, it's kind of fun and it's also kind of upsetting at the same time because I'm like, this, acquiring this media should not be this difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I know. I just kind of heard that they were coming out with that uh, feature on DVD, and I said, you know, I almost bought a copy uh, that was going to be like a bootleg copy uh, just to have it, and then I found out that they were actually bringing it out. So I just snagged it on Amazon as soon as it came out. And, uh, boy, it was really fun to watch that again. And it, like I said, they, the way they reproduce it, the colors are really good, the sound's really good, and uh, it was good revisiting that because I hadn't seen it since we first saw it uh, in dailies, you know, they would show it to us every day, what we did the day before. So we never really got to see the whole movie. We didn't have like a day where we went out to the theater and watched it. I, all I know, and, and you had just mentioned this a, a moment ago about, about like with He-Man, She-Ra, the, the Filmation Ghostbusters series and Brave Star with their basically being one villain. I think that also, and I know you're more than aware of this, but I think that also goes under that whole um, budget, budgetary reasons. Uh, you know, creating creating different characters means and adding them to the series means more work. So that's why you, more work and more work equals more money being spent. And that's why we have this same setup and same formula because it worked before. Let's do it again. And it keeps costs low. What used to annoy me when I used to watch He-Man and, and um, She-Ra and all those other cartoons was at the end of the episode... With He-Man, you'd always have somebody giving you the lesson of the day. And as a kid, I'm like, I know what the lesson is. I just watched this cartoon. You told me it already. You don't have to repeat it to me. But I understand why they did that. I, I do. I, I really do. And, um, and when watching She-Ra, there was this thing during, watching ep during an episode of She-Ra where not only were you watching the cartoon, but you were supposed to be looking to find this character that was hidden. And at, Oh, what was his name again? Lucky. Yes. And you, <laughs> you were supposed to, uh, to find him, um, you know, and then like at the end of the episode, he's like, did you find me? Here I am. And he'd yeah. show you and then he'd give you the lesson of the day. That, I mean, I understood the purpose of it, but also at the same time, it, it just, it annoyed me because it felt like, and I didn't know if they were trying to satisfy, you know, FC, the FCC or, or whoever was in charge of overseeing, uh, you know, cartoons and television at that time, um, if they were trying to satisfy a requirement. Or once again, going back to the thing like, you know, talking, you know, not dumbing it down, but talking down to kids. But, you know, a child, you know, kids are smart. They get it. You don't have to tell it to them again because, you know, they, they do recognize it and they do see that. But um, well, still... you're right. It's it's mainly because um, at that point, uh, cartoons were being monitored and they didn't want any violence. They didn't want any, you know, you couldn't hit somebody with something. It always had to take place off stage. Um, and when they came up with this moral thing, it was all the TV executives that just went gaga for it. Mm. You know, we did the same thing. We groaned because every stinking episode had to have, you're wasting time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was the same, like I said, it was the same thing. Every show had that moral at the end. But I have to tell you that it is the first show that I ever worked on 
that if somebody said, what do you do for a living, and I said I was an animator, they would say, oh, well, what are you working on? And I'd say, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and they would go, oh, my kid loves that. <laughs> it was the first series that parents actually knew yes. what it was. So that was kind of, it kind of made me a, a star <laughs> in my own little way. You know, people would, uh, of course, what ends up happening when you're a star is people want you to draw them pictures all the time for free. <laughs> yeah, I, that, I, that I can believe. <laughs> that, I, that I can definitely believe. I was wondering if you had any trends or anything that you didn't really care for or that was especially frustrating to you on the production end with animation. Like, uh, is there anything that you can tell that when you're watching a cartoon today that uh, these guys are just, they're, they're not getting it right exactly or, uh, or anything along those lines? Just like you uh, kind of had the same view on comics that I think we can all agree with. Right. Yeah, I would say... Um the, the main thing that I noticed with, uh, especially with the cartoons done overseas, which is most of the stuff now, is that uh, we, we used to shoot thing on, things on twos. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but that means that every cell gets shot twice on the, by the camera. Um, and in Japan or Korea, they sometimes shoot things on threes and fours, so what ends up happening is it kind of looks like it's almost strobing. It, it doesn't move as smoothly. And that's, again, they're, they're trying to cut corners. A lot of the stuff uh, coming out of Japan doesn't have a lot of weight to it. Like when they're running towards the camera, the legs are moving, but the body really doesn't go up and down, so it doesn't look like they're really running. It just looks like their legs are moving. And so there's some of the things like that that I don't really care about the new stuff. I do think that with the advent of Bruce Timm and the whole Batman and even the Superman one and the Justice League, which I just love that Justice League one because it brings in the characters that, uh, like Hawk and Dove, you know, I mean, when have you seen Hawk and Dove, which is, you know, Ditko's one of my favorites, so I loved Hawk and Dove. That's what I loved about that show is it's all these characters that really aren't in the Justice League, but yet you got to see them. So, yeah, I, I think the Bruce Timm stuff by far is probably the best stuff I've seen. Tom, you grew up in the late 50s and early 60s and stuff, and I'm wondering, um, what was your first comic? Well, I don't know if I can remember my first comic, but, uh, you know, I collected uh, kind of the, the normal fare of the day. I had a lot of the world's finest and Superman and Batman. I mean, I liked Dick Sprang a lot. That was my consummate Batman. And like I said, Kurt Swan, I mean, I just his, his stuff was just flawless. He was such a great artist. You know, the Flash hadn't really come out yet. That wasn't until the late 50s. So I, I don't remember there was no Justice League. It was just basically... And I remember having the... Uh, some of my favorite comics were the uh, the Giants, like the uh, Superman Annual, where they put five or different old, you know, 50s or even 40s stories in there. And then finally, uh, one day, uh, we lived on Long Island, and we would just, you know, as kids, camp out in the backyard, set the tent... You know, we lived on, you know, fairly good, maybe about an acre or so. So we had some room to get out in the woods, set up a tent. And my next-door neighbor well, was a comic book fan, too. And we'd go out there and just have our flashlight and do the typical thing you see in a movie, you know, where you're sitting there, you know, reading these comics with your buddy there. And and he pulled out these comic books. And I'm going, you know, what the heck is that? I've never seen that before. And it was Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. So my first recollection of a comic that I just 
I mean, I have it to this day, the same one that we swapped. I swapped him my uh, Superman and Batman for his uh, Marvel comics. And so it was Spider-Man number four, the first appearance of Sandman. That just set me up. That's what actually started me as a collector of comics rather than just a reader of comics. I, I always have kind of liked sort of the off-brand stuff. Like when I was young, we had a dentist that used to have comic books there that you could read, and I, I read The Fly and Jaguar. And I've got a full collection of those, too, because I always kind of like, like I said, I liked the off-brand stuff. Even Charlton, you know, I liked uh, Judo Master and some of that stuff. But so my first comic that I really remember having that I really loved was uh, Spider-Man number four. And then from there on, I just, uh, you know, started every every time I'd come out, I'd get my mom or dad to buy me a comic, or I finally got a paper route. And with the paper route, I'd just pay for my papers every every week, and then I'd run with whatever change I had left and go down to a little place called Scudders, which is like a soda fountain, hamburger, get your milkshake type of place, but they had a little stationary section and had nice rack comics, and I would go in there and just get everything I could, you know, and, and uh, I just loved it. It was, it was such a great hobby when I was a kid, and I never thought they were going to be worth anything. I just liked them because I loved the artwork and the stories. It's funny that you mentioned some of the old MLJ Comics characters because, of course, once they were kind of absorbed by Archie Comics, you know, a lot of the different versions of those characters that you had mentioned, like uh, like the Black Hood, for example, have kind of been retold and repurposed by uh, by DC lately because uh, what they've done is they've kind of adapted the concept of some of those old, I'm, I'm just going to say a little more pulpy kind of uh, heroes and... Um, you know, they now have their own series now, like uh, Black Hood is the web that they've had from the uh, Mighty, Mighty Crusaders these uh, last couple months and stuff that that, uh, that DC's been putting out, which right. is kind of an interesting uh, sort of revival to that well, uh, end of things. That's kind of what happens when, uh, you know, these little companies go out of business and they've got some characters that were popular at one time. And, you know, they get purchased by DC, and so they have to kind of find a way to fit them into their uh, their universe. And, uh, I mean, one of the things I, I have difficulty with DC is they just have, they have way too many universes. There's too many Earth 1s, Earth 2s, Earth this, Earth that, and it just, it's just, it's a little, it's a little too confusing. Although I like, you know, I like the Justice Society, that stuff, when they, like around, what was it, Justice League 21 or 22, when they came back, and you had the, the different Atom and the old Flash with the Mercury helmet. And uh, so I liked all that stuff, but um, I, I have not really kept up with comic books probably since the mid-'90s. Uh, and it was basically strangely coinciding with the uh, Image Comics arriving on the scene. Uh-oh. And uh, they just kind of lost, they lost it for me, and I just stopped. I, I got tired of all the comics were where every panel was a pinup page rather than a, a storytelling mechanism. And it was just all these guys gritting their teeth and women with big breasts and long legs and really no story content. Beautiful drawn, but I just didn't like it at all. And that's right about the same time that the implosion happened in the comic book industry. And uh, I had a comic book shop for a few years. I finally had to close it because uh, everything just fell apart you know people people started realizing that you can't buy 
10 copies of the brand new X-Men number one and expect it's going to go up to $1,000 because there was 8 million of them out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these comics aren't going to put, the, put your kids through college. <laughs> That's not going to work. I'm just wondering, as a fan and as a reader, are you kind of, a, would you say, like a student or a fan of the Golden or the Silver or the Bronze Age in particular? Or is it more, like, are you more character-oriented as a reader than you are timeline-wise? Well, you know, I, I do like certain characters, but um, I'm kind of, I like the history in comics, and... The Golden Age, it's kind of like trying to compare the Wright Brothers airplane with uh, F-14. And, you know, people have been able to go, well, who wants the Wright Brothers airplane? The F-14 is cool looking one. It's sleek and it's awesome and it's got all this firepower. But if it wasn't for the Wright Brothers airplane, there wouldn't be an F-14. So I really am the type that really can look back and see. Uh, I mean, the Golden Age was the art wasn't very good. The stories were usually you'd get three, four, five stories in a comic, uh, and so there were little short stories that were kind of eh, not very, not very well written. But I still have a feeling for all those characters because they were the first ones. And let's face it, most of those characters still live today. I mean, you know, you still got Captain Marvel and Superman and you know Green Lantern, although he's changed to the Silver Age Green Lantern, and same thing with Flash, but Wonder Woman. So I, I actually have kind of a reverence for all of the different eras for different reasons. Um, even in the 70s with the Bronze Age, it was fairly obvious that things had gotten very uh, formulaic. It lost because Stan Lee kind of left as the head writer. And you could definitely tell the difference, but they still had every now and then some good storylines. They still had some great artists like... Uh, you know, I love uh, George Tuska, who, you know, I have a commission that I had from George Tuska of Iron Man that he was 92 years old when he drew this. And if he saw this thing, you'd think he was like, you know, 45. I mean, it's just beautiful. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got it. It's Iron Man versus Titanium Man. And he's put this beautiful background. He made, he made it with a kind of a black, grayish wash. It's absolutely unbelievable, and and I also have a Daredevil that I had him do for me with Daredevil and the, and the Black Widow, and I had found out that he was uh, available for commissions, and so I called him up, and uh, he's completely deaf, and so his wife would answer the phone and take the orders, and you know for like two hundred and fifty dollars I think it was, uh, just this beautiful drawing. And he just passed away this last year, and uh, gosh, I just felt terrible because I got to kind of know his wife. And uh, I knew that his health was failing because I called up about another commission. I wanted him to do a uh, Fantastic Four with Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Oh, and wow. I thought he would have done a great job of that. And that was going to be pretty expensive because it was like, you know, an extra 50 bucks for each character you put in. So it's probably going to cost about four or $500. But I just thought, man, he does a really nice Fantastic Four. Uh, I'm sure he could handle Galactus. Because Tusk was really known for his hands. He just had some really cool-looking hand poses. And I could just imagine what he would have done with these giant hands of Galactus coming out at you. And unfortunately, you know, he, he was really in ill health and he couldn't do it. And uh, But the fact that he lived to like 93 and was still working in the industry, he actually did some work for uh, Image Comics. 
and uh, at that age, it was amazing. Some of my favorite work that Tuska did was before he really, really sunk into the um, sequential art stuff. And he used to do kind of like um, magazine work. And he kind of used this story called Crime Does Not Pay. And, uh, you know, my buddies and, and, you know, my friends know that I'm a huge just crime fiction fan. I mean, Donald Westlake, any of the, you know, neo-noir or even psycho-noir stuff. And if you ever get a chance, and this is one of those things like the bootlegs we were talking about earlier, but uh, his illustrations for Crime Does Not Pay, I, I, I found some digital copies of those. And, you know, they're prose stories mixed with with his illustrations and it, and they are just phenomenal. They're just phenomenal. It's like when he has someone gripping a gun, it's just like the most intense flavor that, that you could have added to those uh, crime stories. And that's what I'm saying about his hands. I mean, that's kind of what he was known for is he just really, you know, he was, he was a step above a lot of the Marvel artists. I don't think he was quite to the Kirby uh, as far as his layouts. But I still think he was, you know, Gene Colan, uh, you know, even Don Heck kind of gets a bad rap. But, boy, I think his Avengers stuff he did in the early Avengers around the 20s and 30s, boy, I, that was my quintessential Avengers when, when Cap first joined and, uh, you know, Goliath came along. Uh, that stuff was really good. I've um, always been an Infantino fan, even though it's really kind of stylized, but I really loved his Flash. Yeah, I've got a couple of Gene Colan pages, and he, he's another guy that I don't understand why he gets a bad rap. I mean, his Daredevil stuff was phenomenal. I mean, have you seen his Daredevil stuff back in the, uh, I guess it was around the 30s or ish numbers? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think I think his art, I, I think people look at, well, back then when he, used to, when, he get, when he used to get a bad rap, I think people look at his art the same way a lot of people, a lot of people will look at Kirby, going back to Kirby again. If they, didn't understand this, if they didn't understand the style and the purpose that it served for the story itself, he, you uh-huh. know, he, he, he gets dismissed. It was never an issue when, because uh, I want to say Colin did some work on, for, for uh, Marvel's Dracula, right? Tomb of Dracula? Oh, yeah, forever. Yep. And there was never really, I never heard anybody complain about that. And granted, I was too young when it first came out to hear those complaints. But as I got older, I never heard anybody ever complain about a colon doing that. But if he did like superhero stories, people would complain because they, they felt that the style didn't match up with the story. And I'm like, no, you have to meet him halfway on this, you know, because his, yeah. his art is worth it. So. You know, you, trust me, you're sleeping on it. Come back to it later and you won't be disappointed. So, well, and you're really right because his Dracula stuff, the reason it was so popular and so good is that he had the mood that he put into his drawings. It seemed rainy and dark and shadowy. And I mean, he just, everything he does has that feel to it. And I mean, literally, I don't think Kirby could have done that. Mm-mm. You know, I think it would look pretty stupid if Kirby did, uh, did Dracula. It's just like he couldn't do Spider-Man. You know, you needed... You needed Ditko to make him kind of spidery, because otherwise he always looked too, too muscular for for Spider Man. I'd, I'd say the seen... same for Tom. I'd say the same for you know the work that Bernie Wrightson did too. It's 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 just hyper stylized. If you look at some of the sketches that he's done of like Uncle Creepy and, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, beautiful stuff too. I mean, you know, he's he's one of those guys that he's heads above the other people doing that type of stuff. 
but I think he would struggle doing the Avengers. You know, it just wouldn't look right. Um, going back to Don Heck, it's funny you mentioned Don Heck because Don Heck is actually involved in one of my favorite limited series uh, of all time by DC Comics based off of a Ruby Spears property, The Centurions, uh, Power Extreme. There was a four-issue limited series of The Centurions, and Don Heck did the pencils for it. As a kid, I had all the issues, and I lost them. And a fr- a good, my good friend John um, was able to find them for me again uh, not too long ago. And I looked through those, and, and it may not be Don Heck's best work, but I don't care. I love looking at every single panel, every single page, because it tells a, leg- it tells a story. I, and I'm, and like I'm, and I'm, I'm a kid again. When I pick it up and I read it, I'm, you know, I'm 12 years old all over again, sitting at my grandma's house in the living room, reading that book. And that's all Don Heck pencils with Alve inks, and I love it. Exactly, and you know, that's one of the things that I think is missing uh, in today's comics. Now, not with everybody. I mean, some people are incredible storytellers. But, you know, Don Heck, uh, he could tell a story. I mean, you go panel to panel, and everything makes sense. You know, he, he drew fine. He got kind of a bad rap because, literally, they would get behind in the book, and they'd throw it at him with like a week left, and he would have to do it fast. And that's why they started calling him Don Hack. Mm. And it was so unfair because he was saving Marvel's butt by getting this book out on time. And they knew he was going to have to rush it. But when Don Heck had the time, uh, he was as good as anybody as far as starting. In fact, I even see his work similar to Tusca's as far as the way they laid things out. And uh, like I said, I... I was a huge Avengers fan, and not so much with the Avengers, but the Hulk and Iron Man and Thor. I don't know, that, that seemed kind of, I don't know how the Hulk could ever be in a group. But once they brought in, like around number 16, 17, 18, when Cap came back, and then they got the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and uh, eventually Goliath, man, I just loved those comic books, and it was all Don Heck, and... and you know, nice, nice looking, pretty women. I mean, he, you know, he could draw. I look at a penciler like Don Heck, and he also reminds me of um, another artist that did a work for the original uh, West Coast Avengers limited series in the eighties. And he did, he did work here and there, but for some reason, no one ever, I don't, and I don't know why, but he never got a lot of work. The gentleman's name was Bob Hall. Oh, I, yeah. I thought he was a fantastic artist. I remember getting the uh, West Coast Avengers limited series in the 80s, and when I saw the interiors, fell in love with it. And I was so excited to get every single issue because Bob Hall put in work, told a story. And people on this show who listen to this show um, know that I... Even though I'm not the biggest fan of Al Milgram, I, I respect his work ethic. When the West Coast Avengers Limited Series was done and the regular series started and it was Al Milgram, Milgram artwork, I was so spoiled by the Bob Hall artwork, I, couldn't, I had the hardest time reading the new series because that's the, that's the mark that Bob Hall left on that, left on that book for me. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I'm with you. I'm not really a big Al Milgram fan. Uh, I don't know, everything seemed a little too sketchy or something. I don't know what it was. 
when he when he would ink something, I could tell it was him, and I just didn't care for it. Even if he didn't draw it, I didn't really care for the inks. He was he was one of those gentlemen that I think he's he's under the he was under the same thing that sometimes I think Don Heck was under. If they needed a person to finish a book or get it done fast, whether it be inks, pencil, story, what have you, he was that utility man. And so yeah. you you know the result might not be the greatest, but the book the book was out there because back then if a book didn't come out on time, everybody was in trouble. Yeah, and I think Sal Buscham was the same way. He uh, his stuff always looked a little thin to me, and I think he inked himself, and there wasn't a whole lot of thick lines and shadows. He just kind of sketched things, and I didn't care for the style that much, but I still think he was he was a pretty darn good artist. I think he did a, a pretty good Hulk. Yes. And and of the of the guys that are like in the nineties that kinda came along, I, I like Silvestri. You know, Jim Lee is really good. Rob Leefield or Liefield, however you say his name, I just don't like it all. Yeah, they had they had some good artists, but again what what I didn't like about image comics was the whole every page being a pin up rather than telling a story. Well, also with that, because it was so popular it started to flow into into other publishers as well because image books were selling so yeah. that also affected you know the it, they image affected the industry as a whole from you know from like the biggest publisher to the smallest smallest publisher and i sometimes i think that people really fail to realize the mark they left on comics um, whether it be from a positive standpoint of an independent an independent company came up out of nowhere and was trumping um, you know the long time the long time mainstays of Marvel and DC, or from a negative aspect that yes, DC had had late books before with Watchmen, um, with Watchmen and uh, I think uh, Dark Knight Returns, and so and so did Marvel. Marvel had late books in the past, but nowhere to the variety of late books that Image had had in the '90s, and that had spread also it spread over to. Um, you know, and to other publishers as well, that late books started to become accept acceptable, which is yeah. Some- they brought a whole they brought a whole new uh, meaning to the word late book. I'll tell you, they were because uh, <laughs> at that point I had my comic book store, and so I was real aware because I had to order every week uh, at how far behind they were, and th- that's kind of what hurt them because I think they had they had some good ideas. Uh, they ex- definitely had some excellent artists. I do love the fact that young guys can, you know, get up and duke it out with the big boys. But they weren't ready. I mean, they, they just... How many episodes did they, you know, change the... Uh, they go five issues and then it's canceled and they come back with another one and start at number one again. And it, it didn't have that continuity that Marvel or DC had where, you know, when I'm collecting comics, I don't want to collect a bunch of four-issue runs. I want to have... One through a hundred, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they weren't quite ready to do that, and I think then egos got in the way, and uh, that's when they started breaking off into Wild Cow and all that sort of stuff, and it uh, it ceased being Image Comics. It ended up being a bunch of little independent artists that couldn't get along. The end of uh, the filmation era. Um, I remember, like the last last filmation cartoon I think I may have seen was possibly either Brave Star. Or there was an animated film at the movie theaters, which I can't remember the name of per se. But it was one of those two things. That was that was the last time I saw new filmation material. And I once um, overheard that um, a company had bought filmation, and then they closed them down. 
And for some reason, as a, as a teenager, I thought it was like a uh, a uh, makeup company because the name sounded very French. So I was like, why did a makeup company buy Filmation? I didn't understand. So the name may have been something completely different. But um, can you talk to talk to us about the um, the end of Filmation? Yeah, this was. Uh... I had when I started Filmation, uh, I was lucky enough to sit with uh, these two guys. Uh, one one guy's name is Mike Toth, and the other guy's name is Carl Hall. And uh, we ended up being like the, the three musketeers. I mean, we just we had the same feelings on stuff. Although interestingly, none of them, neither one of them, liked comic books. They didn't have the slightest interest in comic books. But as far as animation, we all just loved the Warner Brothers stuff. I mean, so. We were like the Three Musketeers. We went everywhere, lunches together, breaks together, uh, you know, went to ball games after work and everything together. I remember one time we were sitting, eating lunch, and Mike turned to me and he said, you know what, uh, we're living the good old days. He said, we're going to look back on this when we get older, and we're going to go, you know, wouldn't it be great if we were back here? And that's exactly uh, what it was like. I mean, we, we found out, because we were working on Brave Star, and we pretty much wrapped up Brave Star, and they had just uh, started on a new show called Quest of the Prairie People, which uh, you remember the little guys that dug under the ground in, in Brave Star? Yes. Uh, they were going to have their own series. And then we also did a, a movie. Uh, we had a, a uh, you know, Lou's uh, vision was to do some Disney-esque uh, movies with a little bit better animation and more for feature release to the movie theaters. And the first one we did was Pinocchio and the Emperor of Doom, or did they make it Emperor of the Night? I know they changed it. But in it had, like, you know, Don Knotts was kind of the Jiminy Cricket character, and uh, and so the other show we did was Bugsburg, and it was basically that Jiminy Cricket character. Uh, and it was all kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Fleischer movie, Hoppity Goes to Town, where it's mm-hmm. a bunch of bugs. Yes. And it was kind of similar to that. So we started production on those, and we were really excited because... These were shows that were cartoony that we could really kind of draw and really animate the things really well. And I can remember uh, we heard somehow a rumor got started that, well, there was a a new, uh, I think in Congress they were going to pass a new law that if if any sort of company that had 50 or more employees was going to close their doors, they had to give like 90 days notice. So in other words, you couldn't come to work and just suddenly the doors are closed and you're out of work. And we found out that that was going to take effect the following Monday. That's when it was signed into into law. And then the rumor came down that there was some company from France that was interested in buying Filmation. And just being who I am, like I said, I could tell with the, uh, the strike that we had that something was coming. I said, you know, if this thing is happening on Monday, where they're going to have to give us 90 days' notice, they're going to close the studio this Friday. And everybody's like, really, you think so? And I said, you know, I just have this feeling if this French company wants to buy us, they're going to buy the company. They're only going to want all of our shows that we've done so they can repackage them to video. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. They, they, Lou Scheimer took us in, and he said it was terrible because he was riding up the elevator with one of the other animators, and the animator... T- said to him, he said, Lou, I just want to thank you for keeping uh, animation in America. And Lou shared with us when he was at this meeting, because it was a full company meeting, and Lou had 300 people there. And he shared with us that he, he could hardly look the guy in the face, because he knew what he was going to tell us. 
And so we had that meeting, and it was just like, guys, I just I, I can't compete anymore. We, we're, we're not losing money yet, but we're getting close to that. And this company came up with a really good offer, and I'm getting old, and it's just time. It's time, you know, to back out. And we were just, like, stunned because, I mean, we thought filmation was forever. And, and it was the last, that's it. <laughs> you know, the only thing you can do from here is go over to Disney Studios. And they were struggling at that time. You know, they hadn't, it's when they were doing Great Mouse Detective and some of the stuff that didn't do very well. And they were very close to shutting down the whole animation department until they finally did The Little Mermaid. And that kind of pumped some life back into them. But, uh, yeah, so we heard that. And it was just like, I'm telling you, within a week, it was a fire sale. I mean, I, right now, I'm sitting at my animation table that I had at Filmation. I bought it for $25. And I've got, I've got the whole setup. I've got my, uh, the shelving unit. I've got the little uh, sort of a cabaret where you can put all your pencils and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've got my main, main drawing table with the fluorescent lights and my animation disc. God, it cost me a whole 25 bucks. Wow. And, you know, I, I'm just so glad I got it because it's the actual one that I used on all those. If you look on my uh, website, the opening page is me holding up some recreations, and that the desk behind me—that's the one. And uh, you know, I just cherish this thing because this was this was where I cut my teeth on animation. You know, it was just awesome. Hmm. So that was, you know, like I said, that was just the end of it. You know, look for other work, and luckily for us, we ended up uh, at that Bear Animation Company, mm-hmm. which was a. Disney animator who had broken off and started his own studio, and we ended up working on like Roger Rabbit, tons of commercials, uh, and that kind of kept us in the animation industry for about another three or four years. But it kind of wasn't the same because doing commercials is just not as much fun as doing like episodes of the TV series. Oh no, <laughs> not not at all. There's, you know, there's such a finality if a finality with a, a commercial as opposed to a cartoon series where. There, you know, there's more than one story to tell. Yeah, so it was like, you know, it was the end of an era, and it's basically uh, when I moved to Seattle in '89. Uh, I was working at Bear Animation, and we were working on uh, Prince and the Popper, which was a Mickey Mouse kind of short that opened up with uh, the rescuers down under. Mm-hmm. And my mother suddenly passed away, and uh, I had one of my best friend was living in Seattle. He's an airline pilot, and he said, "Why don't you come on up?" Uh, and check out Seattle, and I really had nothing keeping me down in L.A. anymore, so I went up there for a, a couple of weeks and um, ended up buying a house up in Seattle. They were so cheap, and I had worked it out with Bear Animation, so I could actually just get FedEx work to me. So they'd send me up a scene, you know, and I wasn't able to animate anymore. I had to be an assistant again because when you're an animator, you have to be able to, like, check your work on the video machine, and then they have to okay it. But as an assistant, they can just send me the stuff, and I can draw it, and and it's kind of the final art, and there's no big deal. But that was fine, and the pay was still really good. So I had this really nice house on a golf course, and I'd be sitting up there all, all day long just drawing, and I'd look over there and go, oh, time to go play golf. And uh, that kept up for a couple years, and I ended up getting freelance work from uh, Steven Spielberg. We were doing, they were doing a movie called uh, We're Back. Oh, I remember that. Dinosaurs. And then uh, Bluth, uh, I think it was Bluth, did Thumbelina, and I got some work. You know, you kind of your name kind of gets out there that you're available for freelance work, mm-hmm. and you kind of get a good reputation on getting stuff on, you know, in on time, and that you do good work. So I started getting work like that, and I actually eventually got something from Chuck Jones, 
uh, it was a movie with uh, Pam Dauber and John Ritter called Stay Tuned. I remember that. And right in the middle, they get turned into these cartoon mice, you know, Warner Brothers-style mice. The animator who was animating this stuff had remembered me from that movie that we didn't talk about yet called Rover Dangerfield, which was Rodney Dangerfield as a dog. <laughs> and he had remembered me that I was really good at, at cleaning up stuff, and he was a little bit sloppy as an animator. So when he found out I was available, they sent all the work to me um, to do this Chuck Jones thing. And it was great fun, because it was like doing a Warner Brothers cartoon, you know, with the stylized mice and everything, just like you see in the old 40s cartoons. I think I was at a comic book convention, and I wasn't there as anything except for somebody selling comic books. And I happened to have some Scooby-Doo cells that I had gotten from my days in Hanna-Barbera. So I had some of those sitting up there in case people wanted to buy them. And some guy that also had a booth that owned a comic book shop uh, in Washington near Seattle uh, came up to me and said, Hey, uh, where'd you get these cells? And I said, Well, I used to be an animator in L.A. And he said, Well, I've got a comic book store. What I'd like to do is I'd like to have you come out to the store, and I'll kind of advertise this. And, you know, you can talk to people about animation if they want to get your autograph or whatever. And I kind of laugh, like, who's going to want my, my autograph? Nobody's who I am. <laughs> but uh, I was just amazed that I showed up that Saturday, and there must have been, like, I don't know, 150 people waiting in line. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I'm like... <laughs> guys, I'm only an animator, it's not some big deal, but I'm in Seattle. I mean, they don't see animators every day. And uh, so the guy that was the, um, the head of the comic book store said, I also know somebody from Seattle Times, and I'm going to have him send, uh, send him out to your house, and they're going to do an article about you, about how you moved from Hollywood to Maple Valley, and that you're doing you know, animation work from there. And I thought it was going to be a little teeny article on some, you know, page seven or something. And I open up the entertainment section, and I'm on the front cover. Big, huge picture of me with some of my drawings of Rover Dangerfield. And uh, that ended up being, there was another animator who had worked down in the studios that moved up to Seattle. And he called me up, and he said, you know, there's not much animation work around anymore, but there's a timing, timing direction, so you could be a director of the cartoons. And and I said, you know, I you know, I would like to do that. I've I've done similar things like that, timing timing the animation. And basically, what they do is all the work's going to be sent over to China or uh, Taiwan or wherever. But uh, what I did is, you actually just get the entire show, you get the storyboard, and then you just kind of say, okay, you know, turns his head this way, runs, jumps over here. So you're kind of directing the show. And each scene is kind of, you know, you fade in, fade out. You have to know all the different things you can do with that. And uh, it was like $100 an hour. Ooh. So, I, man, I'm all in for this. And <laughs> yes. Man, for a couple of years, even when I was working at Microsoft full-time making a good salary, I still did this on the side because I could literally sit there and watch TV and, and uh, direct the show. And, uh, I mean, that was the, those were the days. I had about three or four years there where I, I made four times the money I've ever made in my life. Uh, I'm, I'm sure and that was sadly, a good <laughs> same thing happened there where now since animation was kind of gone, all the people that were animators decided to start learning how to do direction. 
So they'd rather keep the work in-house than send it out. So that eventually kind of dried up, too. I had like a three or four year run with it, so and I had you know I had a lot of good things to do. I worked on uh, Savage Dragon, uh, Mighty Ducks, uh, Ducktales, uh, Extreme Ghostbusters. In fact, a, a show that was very good was Road Rovers. Oh wait a minute, you worked on that too? I worked on Road Rovers. I used to watch. <laughs> I used to watch that every single weekend. Once again, I was now yeah. I, I was in my twenties when that came out. I did not care. I watched that show every weekend. I thought it was an awesome show, and I, I directed about five or six episodes of it. And I don't even know if I got credit, because usually they would ship two parts of the show out, and usually the main director got the direction uh, credits for it. But it was actually two of us. Uh, the first half of the show I would direct, and the second half of the show, because it was you know a 30-minute show, that's a lot of uh, footage. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that was an awesome show, and it was actually a guy that was a writer at Filmation that created it. His name was Tom Ruger. Hmm. And uh, so it just shows you the people at Filmation, uh, you know, you give them the chance to get out there and get away from the, the formula that Filmation had to stick with, and, and they had some pretty talented people. Oh, yeah. It's, it's one of those things I look at when I looked at Road Rovers, I said this would be a perfect comic book, all ages book, and especially a great comic book for kids. Gosh, it was. And I don't know if you remember, there was an episode where uh, they were making fun of Disney. And I, I don't know if you caught that. Oh, but, uh, I, mean, I may not have seen that one. It was three different countries that were fighting. One of them was Kotzenstock, Eisneria, and gosh, what was the other guy's name? There was Michael Eisner, was Eisneria. <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg was Kotzenstock. And the other country, I forget what the heck it was, but it was another one of the main, the main guys at Disney Studios. Was it Iger? No, oh, no, it wasn't no. Iger. But anyway, at the end of the show, they finally, um, the three countries finally decide to work together. And it says, and they lived, and they are the friendliest place on earth. And <laughs> all, of a, all of a sudden, you see the outline of the countries. It's the uh, the portrait of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it's the borders. Orders of the countries all make a Mickey Mouse. Uh, that, so that's really that's funny. funny because actually, you know, from Disney animation and even I, I grew up in Orlando, just from living in the theme parks, one of the main things that Disney does is they put in uh, those hidden Mickeys. You know, that's the the, the Mickey Mouse logo. So they'll sneak that into, you know, who framed Roger Rabbit or like if you go into the Haunted Mansion and you look above the the second portrait near the dining room table, you'll see a pair of mouse ears. That's funny, man. (laughs) Yeah, we did stuff like that, too, at Filmation. Anytime there was a a crowd scene, uh, there'll be a caricature of one of us in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I'll tell you what, I real quick. I promise you, real quick, and this will be this will be the last question because you talked about Road Rovers. Now you didn't got me all excited uh, because you're <laughs> the first person to mention it besides myself. Probably, I, I don't know, uh, six seven years. You had talked about um, you worked on Savage Dragon, Ducktales, Mighty Ducks, Extreme Ghostbusters, and and I was a big real Ghostbusters fan and an Extreme Ghostbusters fan. Even though it was really hard to actually find. Extreme Ghostbusters on on syndicated television because in my in my neck of the woods it was really difficult to find, but Mighty Ducks when um, Walt, when Disney was all about the Disney afternoon and showing cartoons five days a week, Mighty Ducks used to come on and I just remember one day I saw it 
and I was a teenager when it was on, and um, and mm-hmm. I knew I knew all it was was it was just a plug for people to go watch the real hockey team. That that's all it was. That was the whole purpose of the cartoon. But you know they t- they took that they took that premise and said let's make them you know ducks who play hockey but they're superheroes. And for some reason I couldn't stop watching it. And and and, and I knew it because it wasn't to me it wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but it was just fun. It was it was just fun superhero superhero cartoons and i think like what pulled me out of it for a second was the fact is is that i i knew that this was just a tie-in promotion you know to an actual hockey hockey franchise but (laughs) it was it was the biggest it was the biggest advertisement ever sean the name of the planet was puck world (laughs) (laughs) but but i loved i loved watching that cartoon though i'm not gonna lie i loved watching that cartoon Disney actually went out of their way and made sure that they got the, the best animation studio over in Japan to do it. That's why most of the Disney stuff looked much better than other cartoons. Oh. They really put some money into that, and um, every one of those, like DuckTales and everything, were much better animated than any of the other shows. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that stuff. Um, that stuff definitely has a lasting effect. I, you know, with a lot of those shows on DVD right now, like Ducktales, Darkwing Duck, uh, Chippendales Rescue Rangers, you can still see that quality when you pop that DVD in. Hey, yeah. Tom, was there a lot of competition between the different studios, whether it was Hanna Barbera or Warner Brothers or Disney? Yeah, definitely that. I mean, it's uh, when we had a new series, we were pitching uh, to the networks. Uh, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, Soviet Union in the Cold War. You know, you couldn't let out the slightest inkling that you were working on something because the other the other uh, company would steal the idea. <laughs> you know, you'd end up competing against your own idea that the other studio just kind of did their own take on. So everything was kind of hush-hush. You know, it definitely was. Uh, now, with, with Ruby Spears and Hanna-Barbera, uh, Ken Spears was from Hanna-Barbera. They kind of got their start, Joe Ruby, and they were both, uh, they were basically Hanna-Barbera as far as Hanna-Barbera working together at MGM and then splitting off and starting their own studio. Well, Ruby Spears were working at Hanna-Barbera and split off and did their own thing. So I wouldn't say there was like bad blood between them, but they felt a little bit like, you know, kind of we gave you your uh, start in this business and now you're competing against us. And uh, so there's a little bit of that, but they still they still were friendly enough between between themselves. But it's still, it's still in all, I mean, if there was a if somebody wanted somebody to do a Heathcliff show, you basically had to make a bid for the show, and then usually the low bid would win as long as they knew you were going to do good quality work. So definitely, Hanna Barbera, being the bigger studio, would feel like they're being undercut by their own kids. So there was that competition there. You know, sadly, like I said, you know, I was only about three years into it when most of those other companies disappeared. And then there wasn't much of a problem. But they still competed for, you know, there were one or two animation studios over in Japan that were better than the others. So, you know, you had to compete for that. This has been a very, very just fascinating uh, talk uh, conversation we've had over the past um, over the past two hours, and um, I have to say, I 
I've, I, I've, I've had a lot of fun doing interviews over, you know, in less than the year that this show has been up and running. But this goes down as one of my favorite interviews. Um, Tom, I can't say thanks enough for coming on the show and um, talking to us about uh, your history and, um, you know, living in the world of animation and, and all the things that you worked on. Thank you for taking out the time to come on the show, to, on the show today. I, I can't say thanks enough. Hey, no problem. I said, you know, like I said, we've got we we could talk another three hours. So uh, <laughs> if you ever want to do like a part two, just let me know. Oh, no problem. Well, cool. Yeah, because that's you know that's where I'm at. I mean, I like animation and comics, and you know, I just don't know if which one I would pick. You know, I <laughs> I don't know because I love animation, I love comics, so I don't know which one I'd pick if I had to get rid of one. I'm just glad I don't have to make that choice. Oh, no, I understand. And I'm, 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 you know, even though I just work in comics, I wish I could work in animation. One day maybe, you know, maybe PKD Media will get there, but I got, you know, got to take the time, baby steps. But um, I just love the fact that I can, you know, witness it and see and see the finish and see the finished piece and actually talk to people that have been involved in the creation of such content. And that means... That means everything to me, and I'm, and I know it means a lot to Adam as well. Um, we never we never touched on Duckman. I directed some Duckman or King of the Hill. I mean, there's there's a bunch of stuff later on too. Oh, oh you worked on so, Duckman? Yeah, I did a, a lot of Duckman. <laughs> See, yet again, another show. Now, as 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 a teenager, used to as a youngin, I would say I was probably a little too young to watch Duckman. Uh, mm-hmm. According to my family, but they let me watch it anyway. Yeah, that is a um, that is definitely an all time underrated cartoon show, right yeah. there. Very funny show. Yeah, I've got you know I've got a bunch of these things like um, the Duck Man, and I've got Road Rovers, but they're again they're really kind of bad quality. But that's all I can find. Yeah. See, and so at, least at least I've got them. See, originally I had read somewhere that Duck Man was supposed to be released on DVD, but um, but for some reason at the last minute it was pulled. Um, it's just like um, there's a cartoon that Warner Brothers put out a couple years ago, Duck Dod- the, uh, the Duck Dodgers cartoon from mm-hmm. a few years back. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be released on DVD, and then Warner Brothers decided not to do it. I, I, I seem to think that it's a lot like, well, like the 1960s uh, Adam West Batman show. I mean, we've been hungering for that for, on DVD for years, and I think it's just a matter of... You know the studios have to decide that they want to compromise with one another, and they have to make overtures for, to one another. Well, I like one of the ones I've been waiting for forever. They finally have released it. Is the Man from Uncle? Yes. I was a big Man from Uncle fan when I was a kid, and and you know I've got a, again I've got a set of it, but it's you know kind of just off a of TV, mm-hmm. and uh, they finally have released it. Uh, but it's so expensive. You know, it's going to be one of those things like you said, go to half price books and find it for half. <laughs> oh yeah. Definitely, and plus that series had the had the coolest character name of all time, Napoleon Solo. No, I just said I love Napoleon Solo. He was my favorite. A lot of people liked Ilya Kuryakin, but I liked Napoleon Solo. <laughs> Before we go, I just want to make sure that we uh, get the uh, website correct. Can you uh, tell us the, the how people can get to your website? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Just go to www.comicrecreations.com, and that'll take you right there. You know, there's. A lot of different, I've got a Silver Age page, Golden Age page, uh, Modern Age page. I've got DC and Marvel, so you can choose between those. Almost everything that's on there is already sold, but I can basically do anything anybody wants. In fact, right now I've got, it's so diverse, I'm doing a All Winners number three. So there's your Golden Age. I'm doing a Justice League number three, which is the one with them in space 
uh, kind of in the boat rowing. I'm also doing a big, huge splash page. I mean, this is like 28 by 18 or something, and it's from the um, graphic novel called Hush. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's Jim Lee stuff, and there's a huge thing where it's got Batman and Robin, and it's got the Huntress, and it's got Catwoman and Superman, and that's kind of the one I've got. In fact, I was drawing that when you guys called today. So, I, you know, I've run the gamut. I've done, uh, I've done Crazy Cat. I don't know if you know the Crazy Cat cartoon. Somebody wanted a single panel, you know, blown up, so I did that for them. Uh, just about anything you can think of, if I can find some reference for it, I can do it. Awesome. And, that, and uh, that's the truth. You know, I, I've got one uh, in the works with Tom right now um, for the Super Friends and completely professional totally reliable and you know like i've been doing the original art stuff sean for this is pushing three and a half years at this point since i started and everyone's just kind of like wow i I can't afford that this is it's totally affordable and i wish more people would go after those originals or i wish that more people would you know just take the plunge it's 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 really affordable i mean if you're even if you're on a budget think about how much you spend on comics a month you know what i mean mm-hmm. yes. take a break take a break for a month Try, quit getting all those tie-in issues quit getting <laughs> all those variant covers you know and just set aside uh just a couple bucks and you're and you're golden you know it's 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 really phenomenal stuff and you know tom's got a great website Yes, he does. The time frame is, uh, it depends on how busy I am. Like right now, I've probably got, ooh, I'd say maybe seven uh, backed up. And, uh, you know, I have to let the guy, the latest guy that, uh, in fact, somebody, what did he just order? He just ordered it yesterday. Oh, he wants, um, in the back of Superman number 600, somebody did a their take on Superman number one cover. And he wanted me to, to redo that. So I had to go out and buy the comic book so I can, I don't even know what it looks like yet. So I just bought that on eBay. It should be coming in the next few days. But I had to tell him, I said, you know, I've got six, six in front of you. And uh, I, I only work these part-time. I've got a full-time job. So I, it's going to take, you know, it might take a month or two. Now, if you, you manage to catch me where I don't have anything on the board, uh, I can get it done in a week and a half, two weeks. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, the people are just like, when they get it in the mail, they just can't believe because even on the website, you can't see how nice these look. Especially, I've got two different sizes. I can do them like the Silver Age size, which is 14 by 21, but the largest Bristol board I can get is like 28 by 22 or something like that. And I've done a uh, Amazing Spider-Man number three, the first appearance of Doctor Octopus, and I did it that gigantic size, and yeah, gosh, it just looks unbelievable. I've got. I just have a scan of it that I put up on my wall here, and I, I laminated it, and it looks so nice. And again, that Creeper one that you said, that Creeper number one, well, that's got to be one of the, you're talking about the, my favorite ones to do. That's another one that was, uh, you know, because it's raining out, and everything's dripping, and it's Ditko. Oh, I love Ditko. I just love his Spider-Man. Uh, so that's another one that I really like. So, I mean, it's the, anything you want, I can do for you. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to do the ones from nowadays where they're, coloring them with a computer so they're 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 not really black and white art like the old time so uh they're a little bit more difficult to do a little bit more expensive because i got a lot of extra things i've got to do to process process it to get it ready to go but uh that hush one that i'm doing is that way and uh there's a lot of um where they've used the airbrush and just kind of misted out the uh the buildings 
and so I have to complete the buildings because I don't want to just put this mist here that's just, you know, it's just an airbrush thing. It's hard to do with pen and ink. <laughs> but yeah, anything, you know, modern, old, Silver Age, you know, Charlie Brown, you know, I've done Garfield, you know, I had somebody wanted a Garfield drawing. So I can do just about anything you want. And of course, the one you're talking about with the Legion of Doom, uh, gosh, I just love doing my own stuff. I did one for Thundar and I did one for Blackstar. Now, see, black. what you've done is you've got Sean's brain going 100 <laughs> miles an hour. Yes. <laughs> but I will start saving and putting some money on the side so I can get that uh, comic recreation uh, for sure because uh, Adam's right. The ideas, the ideas are uh, going off in my head right now, and little gears are spinning. If you've got, if you've got favorites like, uh, like I did with that Golden Age cover, you know, you say you like Spider-Man. Maybe it's just like I'm doing one right now, and it's all Jack Kirby characters. So I've got Darkseid, and I've got Galactus. Mm. I've got the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. I've got Stuntman from the 40s. I've got uh, Jimmy Olsen and Superman from the Jimmy Olsen Superman that he did. Um, I mean, just name a Kirby character, Captain America. So I'm making a whole giant poster of all these different characters. It's all going to say the art of Jack Kirby on top. And uh, so if you're a Ditko fan or if you're a Heck fan or if you're a Avenger, you know, I can do anything you need to do. So This has been a great show. Again, Tom, want to definitely say thank you for uh, taking out the time and uh, or answering uh, myself and uh, Adam's questions. Cannot say thanks enough. And um, thank you. <laughs> this has just been absolutely wonderful. All right, and like I said, absolutely no problem. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Anytime I get a chance to talk about comics or animation, I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steel Bots, Agents of Colt, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.